What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Jeff Vandrew. Uh, Jeff is a CPA, an attorney, natural bodybuilder, uh, contributed to BC, BTC Pay Server, and I first came in contact with Jeff um, via the Tales from the Crypt podcast with Marty Bent. He's been on that show twice. I first heard uh, the, the second episode with Jeff, and uh, I found myself disagreeing with a lot of the things that he was saying. Uh, but at the same time, I could tell while listening to that, that Jeff's positions, you know, Jeff was very well read. He considered his positions uh, seemingly quite deeply and just happened to come to different conclusions than I have. And what I think probably fair to say different conclusions than the majority of people in the quote unquote Bitcoin community. So as a result of that, and after a little uh, back and forth on Twitter, I thought it'd be fun to get Jeff on the show uh, to have a discussion, maybe challenge some of my uh, opinions, economic you know, opinions and theories, et cetera, and uh, just have a general discussion. And uh, thankfully he agreed. Uh, Jeff was a, you know, a very good sport in coming on. He's not under any illusions. He knows that his um, opinions on this kind of stuff diverge from many of the people in the Bitcoin community. And um, yeah, like I said, I mean, he, he, he clearly has spent a lot of time uh, forming his opinions. And so it was great to get a chance to uh, have a chat with him, push back and uh, see where we landed. We talked for about two hours and 10 minutes. The first 10 minutes was actually all about bodybuilding. I was a big gym rat in high school, and uh, as Jeff is a natural bodybuilder, I just wanted to pick his brain a little bit about uh, you know that whole uh, that whole world. After that, we we talk for about two hours, and as is the case with all of these conversations um, that are heavy on the kind of economic theory side and and uh, dissecting the current state of affairs and state of affairs in the past and potential solutions for the future, I always look back on these conversations when I'm editing the show. And just think like, damn, like, why didn't I come back with this answer or that answer? Uh, but such is the case in a free-flowing conversation. You don't always articulate yourself uh, exactly how you'd like. But yeah, that's uh, just how it goes. Um, last thing, I'm planning a trip to New York probably in the next two weeks. Um, looking to record some interviews with some Bitcoiners down in New York. If you know of any or you'd like to see me uh, sit down for a chat with any of them, hit me up on Twitter. Let me know who you'd like to see on the show, and I'll do my best to uh, connect with them. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy. Let's do it. So, yeah, before I think the best way to start, Jeff, is I'll just get you to introduce yourself. My, uh, you know, my first introduction to you was via the most recent Tales from the Crypt uh, podcast. Okay. And uh, I know you're fully aware of this, but obviously when I was listening to the podcast, part of me was thinking like, you know, a lot of what you were saying was somewhat unconventional as far as, you know, how Bitcoiners think about governance, you know, uh, economics, that kind of stuff. And so that's what, that's what kind of uh, tickled my interest. And then we had a little exchange on Twitter about, I think, you know, the op opioid crisis or something like that opioids generally and regulations and stuff. So I thought it would just be fun to, to hop on the pod and have a chat. But like I said, before we do that, maybe you can just introduce yourself to people that like hadn't uh, listened to that show or aren't familiar with you yet. Sure. Uh, I'm Jeff. Uh, I, I do a few things related to Bitcoin, I guess. Um, probably, I guess the most interesting thing probably to most of your listeners is I maintain the BTC pay Python library. Mm -hmm. um, that's just sort of a side gig for me. Uh, you know, I do in my free time. 
my main business is uh, KeyKeeper IRA, which is basically a product where you can hold Bitcoin in your IRA using tax-free retirement funds, but all while you also are holding your own private keys. So it's a non-custodial solution. Mm -hmm. And just for so everyone gets the full picture, full picture, uh, bodybuilder, CPA, attorney. Am I missing anything? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, and I, my phone just went off. Let me silence it. I apologize. I forgot to <laughs> no do worries. that. Uh, yeah, I am a competitive bodybuilder. Uh, and yes, I'm licensed as an attorney and a CPA, which sort of ties into my main, you know, IRA business. That's, that's legal in nature. Absolutely. Before we get into the Bitcoin and economics stuff, um, how'd you get into bodybuilding? I, I asked because when I was in high school, I was, you know, enthralled by like the Arnold's book of bodybuilding. And I was, you know, a gym rat for a number of years, but I'm just wondering how you got into it. Um, I started lifting when I was in, uh, yeah, I was in high school when I started lifting, uh, as well. Um, I got into it originally because I was like fat as a kid, um, through like most of elementary school. So it was kind of like an outlet. Yeah. I think it's a really <laughs> common, uh, reason to get into it. So I got into it then never like anything remotely competitive. Um, like, you know, in high school, I went about it in a stupid way. Like I think most people do, um, when they're that young. And then as I got older, I started to get a little more serious about it, but again, uh, never competed or anything. Believe it or not, I didn't start competing until I was, I think I was 30. I got, I might've been 35 by the time I started competing. Um, yeah. So 34, 35 when I first started competing. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed it. I had the time. Uh, it's one of the few sports that works well for me because it's sort of a discipline based sport. It doesn't require a huge amount of coordination. Um, like I played baseball in high school through varsity level, but I was never any good. I was like a bench utility player. Uh, uh, type of thing. So, uh, you know, bodybuilding is more about just the the strength, the, the sort of natural genetics, which mine are okay, not great, and uh, just the discipline. And, you know, so how often do you compete throughout the course of a year? Uh, no, so usually, so I compete in drug-tested orgs. So in natural bodybuilding, you're competing. I mean, it's really pushing it to compete not necessarily one show a year, but during one period of the year, you might try to nail a couple shows in a row, but then you've got to come out of it. Cause without the drugs, you're going to, you're going to get pretty messed up if you try to stay that lean for a long time. Right. So I basically compete like every other year. Um, so I competed in 2019. So I probably won't compete again until 2021. Um, cause it takes me four months to get ready for a show. I usually have to lose about 20 pounds. Uh, and, uh, without, you know, obviously losing a ton of muscle and looking bad, so that's quite a challenge. So, you know, four months to get ready for the show, you compete for, I don't know, six or seven weeks. And then to sort of get your strength back and recover from being that lean takes a couple months, you know, it could take a month or two. So if you were competing every year, you'd never be making any progress because you're right. spending your time cutting and recovering and competing. Um, cause you can't really make progress in the gym when you're prepping for a show because you're eating so little. Um, so that's why every other year is a, you know, a better way to go. I get a year to try to actually make some gains and make some progress. And how have you done with it? I, you know, I'm still only, I guess like three to four years into competing. Um, 
I have never won the overall at a show. Uh, there was a show that I did this past year where I won the 35 and older, which is an unusual uh, category to have at a show because all the shows have masters, um, which is 40 and older for the most part. Um, this one also had just like, a, it wasn't even a separate category, just a sort of a special award, I think it was for like 35 and older. So I won that. That's the best placing I've ever done in a show. Um, the best placing I've ever done in the open in a show is uh, second. I've finished second once in 2017. Right. And when you're cutting, you know, in the cutting phase, I guess, leading up to a show, you know, what, what's your process for doing that? Like, how do you, how do you cut? You just ratchet down calories slowly over time. So you start with a decent deficit. Like if you, if you know where your maintenance is, you try to cut maybe five or 600 calories below that. Right. Um, until you stop losing weight. And then when you stop losing weight, you drop a little more food, a little more, a little more, a little more. And eventually those calories get really low. And then you can start adding in cardio too, more and more as you get closer to the show that helps create a deficit as well. I mean, your body adjusts to cardio, though, so it only works for so long before you have to add more of it uh, to keep losing weight. So it's how do you cut uh, the last bit of water like leading up to a show? Is there a certain technique like salt balance or anything like that? Yeah, I don't do anything too nuts with that. Um, that's the 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 real hardcore water cutting you see more often in the non-tested organizations um for a couple reasons number one they can take prescription diuretics uh we can't right so that's uh uh one major difference and then two um the steroids have their own water retention issues and things like that it's sort of a different ball game for them right uh on our side on the natural side usually all you're trying to do is uh as you get really close to the show not drink a ton of water like not you know, parts yourself, but not go nuts drinking gallons of water and then not do anything weird with your salt, meaning not, you don't want any major fluctuations in salt one way or the other. in that week before the show, you want to just keep a pretty consistent salt, whatever your normal salt intake is, you sort of want to stay there so that you don't end up with any weird fluid balance issues, which can go in, uh, in different directions. And then some guys do take like a teaspoonful of salt in a glass of water, like right before they get on stage. Um, I don't typically do that. It, it does increase vascularity a little bit right, if you do that. Yeah. But uh, most of my, you know, deal is just trying to keep salt level, not do anything stupid. For that reason, like that that week before a show, usually you don't want to like eat out or anything like sure. that. Sure. And what's your what's your first meal once you get off stage? The giant pizza or something, or do you go nuts? Uh, I don't really like pizza that much, so no, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, pizza's not really my thing. Right. Uh trying to think this last year i actually didn't do anything all that particularly crazy i just went and got like i went the last the final show that i did this past year was actually in reno nevada so i just went to like a taqueria and got some tacos and that was that was about it nothing nice. too outrageous and i'm assuming being a natural bodybuilder like do you try to find natural ways whether they be dietary or you know movement based uh, ways of like naturally bringing up testosterone or do you just kind of go hell for leather working out and what it is it is you know there's it's controversial most of the natural testosterone boosters don't do a heck of a lot and there's right. some evidence that boosting your testosterone if you're already within a good physiological range doesn't help very much it only really makes a difference if you're 
sub-physiological, then it's obviously boosting your testosterone is going to make a big difference. Uh, or if you're at the physiological level and you take like steroids where they're going to push you up to super physiological level, obviously that makes a huge difference. Um, so I don't do anything too crazy. I do take boron, um, which is, uh, helps with free testosterone a little bit. Um, and you know, obviously the importance, the real important stuff is, you know, eating a healthy diet, getting your sleep, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Of the only, yeah. I mean, the only real testosterone, quote unquote, testosterone boosting supplement that I take, I this would probably be boron. Right. Cool, man. Well, yeah, that was just a, a little, little bit of a tangent, but it like back in the day, it was something I was super interested in into. So I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit and see what uh, you were doing with it all. No problem. Um, so let's get to the, to the meat of discussion. And so why don't, I mean, if you're comfortable starting it this way, and if you're not, just let me know how you'd like to get into it. But yeah, no problem. Why don't you lay out kind of, uh, you know, you had that article on, on Medium, I think it was a post-capitalist world, something to that effect. That right? was the first one. Yeah, I've right. done a little short series of them. Yeah. Right. So, you know, for, for people that didn't listen to the other podcast, why don't you just uh, lay out your economic, political philosophy in, uh, you know, as concisely as you can? Yeah, sure. So, um, I, you know, I, I guess it's first to just kind of mention that when people talk about capitalism, they can mean different things, right? Uh, some people in the, when I grew up in the Cold War, I'm guessing you did too. Um, back then, it kind of just meant like any country that wasn't affiliated with the USSR, right? So by that standard, I guess I'm a capitalist. Um, but uh, today, a lot of times I feel like it, it, particularly in the Bitcoin community, gets defined a bit more narrowly um, in terms of, you know, uh, a real emphasis on free markets. So when I talk about capitalism during this discussion, I'm going to be using sort of the latter definition, meaning sort of a, a libertarian take on capitalism where markets are self-correcting. Um, you know, the invisible hand is going to guide society to the best possible place and government should just get out of the way. So that's when I talk about not being a capitalist or post-capitalism, I sort of use that definition. Um, and part of the reason I use that as well is one thing I'm going to get into in a second is the distributists did not consider themselves capitalists um, and were in, in um, fairly critical of capitalism. So in terms of, you know, my, to give a 10,000 foot view here, um, I don't reject market mechanisms altogether. So, you know, an orthodox Marxist would reject the market as a method of resource allocation 100%, right? Because they typically believe in uh, more of a central planning type thing. I, I'm not that far. However, it's my belief that the market is a tool for resource allocation. It's not magic. It's not perfect. Um, it does require, you know, human intervention. Um, specifically, I think that the market most tends to get out of control when capital becomes centralized, um, which I believe due to industrialization particularly late industrialization is an inevitability because of economies of scale. Um, and therefore that the made one of the legal systems, major roles, in addition to more generalized methods of, you know, uh, regulating the market such that labor is not excessively subservient to capital should be in, uh, ensuring that capital stays decentralized much more so than would be the case in a, you know, quote unquote, natural free market. Um, and the latter part of that sort of, if you want to call it 
my take on political economy tends to come from distributist writing. Um, for those who are unfamiliar that haven't read any of my work or heard any of my other interviews, um, yeah, distributism is one interpretation, one secular interpretation of Roman Catholic social teaching on the proper relationship between labor and capital. So in the 1860s, uh, there was a papal encyclical that came out called Rerum Novarum, which even today uh, is the basis of the Catholic Church's uh, social teaching on labor and capital. And by the way, I'm not an integralist. I don't favor religious government or anything like that. I'm just, I mentioned this only because that's where all this begins. Um, but this didn't, the, the encyclical was more, it didn't really prescribe any specific solutions. It just kind of uh, more so laid out a broad theory of justice. It was critical of both capitalism and Marxist socialism. Um, it sort of laid out, uh, you know, right, it was more of a rights and responsibilities type thing. It talked about, you know, uh, em employers, what we would call today employers, having basically a duty to treat their employees fairly. It talked about employees having a duty to do their job. It went into a whole bunch of different things. And one of the things that it mentioned was um, the, the benefits of private property and more specifically the benefits of private property being widely distributed. So in the early 20th century, um, they, that and Rerum Novarum was the base of a variety of different movements in the early 20th century. So one of which was, which I won't get too far into now, was the Catholic Worker Movement, which was more of a libertarian socialist movement. Um, another, there have even been uh, fusions between traditional Marxist socialism and Catholicism. That's a thing that's been around. Uh, and then the, the probably the largest of them in terms of being well known, I suppose, uh, is distributism, which is a economic system both opposed to capitalism and uh, total socialization of the means of production, as you would see in, I guess, in a, in a very extreme socialist system. Not all socialist systems even um, seek to do that. And the general idea behind distributism, uh, which is based on originally the writings of uh, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Bullock. The idea there was that, pretty much as I said, the legal, you want to use your legal system to ensure decentralization of capital while preserving the idea of private property. And we can get into specifics of you know, what that would more mean as we sort of go along here. And the, the, probably what I think the best book on the topic as to why this would be necessary would be Hilaire Bullock's Servile State, where he makes the point that industrial capitalism essentially has to always end one way or another. Marx thought this as well. Uh, Marx and Bullock just differed on where they thought it was going. So Marx thought that event that communism was essentially inevitable. Bullock thought that a servile state was inevitable. Um, the servile state basically being a situation where capital is very concentrated in a few hands. Um, those people, due to what's called the capitalist paradox, which we'll get into a little later, um, essentially need to provide a basic level of benefits for the people that they employ, otherwise the whole market would collapse, um, so that they would essentially be willing to do so, but only do so as a condition of employment, which creates essentially, uh, would essentially create a new type of slavery. Um, instead of chattel slavery, which is what we're used to thinking of historically during, say, the Roman Empire or even, uh, you know, 19th century United States, 
um, this would be a wage slavery based system. And that's why the, the book is in fact called The Servile State. So I, I rambled a little bit there. So I'll let you start asking some more specific questions. Yeah, no, that, that, that was good. Um, and I'll, I'll just, you know, whatever comes to my mind, I'll jump on. But the, I, I took two quotes out from the post-capitalist uh, article you did. Sure. Just, just two. And, and so one I'll read and then we can, we can discuss it because obviously it's relevant to some of the things you just mentioned. But it says it's first important to establish that our current era is not imperfectly capitalist, as many claim, but rather indicative of the natural and inevitable arc of capitalism. And I think maybe and, you know, tell me if you if you're cool with this or not. But for, for the yeah. sake of this discussion, like obviously we're all or many of us are interested in Bitcoin because it represents somewhat of a paradigm shift in how things could be organized economically and politically. And that's part of the reason mm -hmm. we're, we're excited about it. And so I don't see too much value in, in nitpicking over um, definitions of the past. Not too, sure. obviously it's important to do so to some degree, but it, it kind of looking toward what the relevance of Bitcoin and what it means vis-a-vis you know, political theories in the past, or and and obviously, of course, what it means independent of any theory of the past, and what it mean for may mean for the future, and how it may manifest. Um, but you know, because you know, to that very quote, you know, I would often say, you know, you, I, of course, we don't have perfect free market capitalism anywhere in the world today. We have crony capitalists or social corporatism or you know, variation of of these things. Yeah, and. Um, but I, I would push back on saying that it's not the inevitable arc of capitalism. I'd maybe put an asterisk by that and say it's the inevitable arc of capitalism if the money is corruptible, right? If, if, if the government is, if, 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 some, if any entity can control the creation, issuance, flows of currency. Absent that, and I think the, you know, obviously Bitcoin's hardness is something that gets talked about a lot and people are very enthusiastic about and for and, and uh -huh. for, for good reason but i think the unconfiscatability of it changes things pretty dramatically as well so um just let's just hang out there for a sec on uh, it's not imperfectly capitalist but rather the inevitable arc of capitalism why why, okay, do, you, well, why do you think that's the, the case i mean the idea behind that so that's part of uh, you know the capitalist paradox and the the paradox sort of goes like this. If you are, well, on some level, you know, you have to believe that there's a, there's a market and everybody's competing in terms of efficiency, correct? Um, and the most efficient players typically in a, in a free market are going to be the ones that are going to win. So what is the, I'll ask you this question uh, sure. and we'll see if you, if you guess where I'm going with this. What is by far the easiest way to improve, improve excuse me, your, your efficiency in production? It's like a no-brainer. Pay your employees less. It's the, the easiest <laughs> okay, thing to do okay. is to cut your employees' right. wages. If, sure. if you can still get it, as long as you can get them to show up uh, and do what they're supposed to, uh -huh. because capital is like, you know, you can, you can buy a new machine that makes you more efficient, but there might be research and it costs money. And there's like a whole, the easiest thing you can always do is just cut your employees' wages. That's by far... <clears throat> what any producer would want to do, assuming that they, that they have the ability to do so. Yeah. Right. So in a competitive market, you've got a situation where in industrialization, you you're basically going to have a race to the bottom in terms of wages, whoever is able to cut, this is not perfectly true, but it's going to be true most of the time. All, well, let me put it, I'll put it to you this way. All things else equal. 
whoever's going to be able to cut their employees' wages the most is going to be the most successful. That's generally the way things work. In order for that, for what I just said, not to be the case, you have to have so many employers um, in a given, let's say for a given job skill, that employees would essentially be the price makers in the market. That does not, has not happened in the industrial market, excuse me, in the industrial era, other than for short periods of time, weird situations like population shortages that tended to work themselves out, um, very specific jobs that were highly regulated, things like that. But outside of that, that has not been the case where employees end up being price makers. So in the absence, absence of that market, all the employers, it's in their interest to drive wages as low as possible. Well, the problem with that in a capitalist society is the people whose wages you're driving down are in fact also your, uh, they're your consumers. So if you drop in driving their wages down, you as an individual producer are benefiting in the short term at least, but you're also creating a recession because you're driving down aggregate demand by cutting your wages. So in the long term, you're going to screw yourself. So one of two things happen, two things happens. Number one, uh, you drive wages down anyway, because you're fighting to survive and that's the most important thing, right? Or number two, you and your other producers all sort of collude to set a floor underneath what you're going to pay your employees. You essentially create a cartel. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those things are not free markets, right? So that's, that's sort of the capitalist paradox. The free market always collapses in on itself one way or the other, either through a straight up collapse by essentially creating a depression due to a lack of demand, or what we've seen more frequently historically, where um, you know producers collude thereby to not drive down wages and not not competitively drive down wages in that way. There are multiple ways in which they can do that. Um, you know, if there's a government available, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, is through things like you know regulation, other things that entrench your existing supply, your your existing suppliers, even. Social programs are a way to do this, um, you know, because that provides people income that they spurs demand um, for various types of goods. But it really doesn't matter whether a government exists or not. That still has to happen. Um, whether they would all, if there was no government, they would have to voluntarily get together and do that. Otherwise, again, wages would be competitively bid down to the point where demand would collapse. So that's generally my point in that capitalism to avoid that outcome where you're in constant, uh, essentially depressions and wildly swinging around up and down constantly, you need some sort of a mechanism to save capitalism from itself. So my point is in today, in that terms of that natural arc of capitalism, what we see today is not like imperfections in capitalism. It's inherent to the system. It's not a bug, it's a feature. And in fact, the mo- in all other sort of arenas outside of sort of those basic um, basic support, you know, levels for the working class, which are insufficient to ever give them any real agency, of course. They're all just designed, again, to create demand. They're not, um, uh, they're not being nice. I should call it a better way to say that. That's not why these things exist, um, at least in the, cur- in the current era. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my place there for a second. Oh, that it's really the only outside of that and those mechanisms, which are usually what you'll hear libertarian types complain about. 
we're in like the freest market ever. I mean, uh, in terms of global trade, we, we don't have uh, price restrictions anymore. Uh, unionization is like nothing in most of the industrial world. Most of these things I think are bad, by the way. Yeah. Um, but libertarians would think these things are all good. And it, none of these things have certainly, you know, uh, improved the distribution of resources. Yeah, I mean, I think many would, would argue that, and, I, you know, I get your point, and we'll get back to the kind of the, the linchpin that is the collusion amongst the, the market, you know, monopolists and making this all devolve as far as your argument is, is concerned. But I think maybe many people would say that the regulations and the differing currencies and the taxation and all this kind of stuff creates a ton of market distortions. So people would definitely push back on you saying, you know, it's a very otherwise free market. I mean, I, I tend to think. Right, but those distortions. So, okay. I'll give you, so you mentioned taxes, right? Uh, libertarians typically hate taxes. Okay. So in my situ imagine a, a hypothetical where there is no government, right? right. Um, and so these producers essentially have to collude to create this floor on their own. They can't use the government to do it. Right. Well, they have to pay for that. So what are they going to do? They have a couple different things they could do. Uh, if they have a lot of power over a territory, they could do something really similar to a tax where they just tell everybody, hey, if you want to live here and you want to get stuff from us, you got to pay us whatever per day, year, month, anything like that. Seems starts to look like a lot like a tax, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't do that, what's their other option? They have to raise prices in order to provide those benefits in order to stimulate demand. What's, what does that look like? Looks like a hell of a lot like a sales tax. So one of my main conceits here is this whole idea of, you know, quote unquote government, that when these things are imposed by a quote unquote government, they're bad. But when they're, when they come about spontaneously through a private entity, they're good. It's a distinction without a difference. And in fact, things are con considerably worse with the private entity because with a government, you know, we might disagree on how much power you have over your government, how much your vote matters, how much all of these things matter. But I know you're not in the private, you know, collusion, servile state situation. You're going to have no power at all. I mean, they're not going to need to pretend to even care about what the governed are thinking because they're going to be completely, uh, you'll be completely reliant upon them. Right. So the government essentially is nothing more than a monopolist on, you know, coercive violence to implement these programs that's all it is it's nothing special it's not like some separate category of, uh, of right but back, back to the original was. original point the fact that they can create and control money is just a massive you know lever that which if a government-like entity was created in the free market then they probably wouldn't have that degree of of leverage right uh, maybe i don't know because well let's uh, say in a, let's say in a bitcoin world they just wouldn't have the power to create more currency if they wanted it, right? Depends how few, maybe. I mean, that's why I care about Bitcoin. It certainly cuts in the direction of decentralization, which is something I care about a lot, but also maybe not. Uh, if, if technological economies of scale were to develop to the point that the number of producers are small enough, they could literally dictate what they're willing to accept and not accept as payment at that point. True, um, so, true. But I, I think a lot of this argument hinges on a pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, unlikely, like perfect, perfect collusion, right? Like the, the, that, that, first of all, that those actors would, you know, always act in perfect collusion and one wouldn't get greedy and want to satisfy unmet market demand and one wouldn't be a rogue, 
you know, partner in that arrangement or whatever. And two, I just feel like the big, you know, thing that doesn't get mentioned in this, this discussion is the role that innovation plays in disruption. You know, like Apple computer was started in a garage with two dudes and it took down IP, IBM, which was the, you know, the behemoth in, in that uh, industry at the time. So like, I, I feel like the collusion argument, while there's definitely consolidation in free markets, I get that. I just feel like the ability of the, the free market to allow for innovation and allow people to freely exchange, capitalize, demand, supply, things related to that innovation would would cause churn at the top it wouldn't just well, be you know colluders forever those guys are the kings of the world forever it would you know it would change and it would morph and some people from the bottom would come up and well i think well you have a couple things there number one if that were the case uh the reason that that's been the case in the 20th century as you mentioned apple right I mean, Apple was founded in what, 70, late 70s, right? I don't, I don't know the exact year. Um, that era, like the late, the second half of the 20th century, where, all, where most of these like innovations and all this great stuff that's always touted as free market took place, um, we had or had only recently come off of, uh, I mean, wage controls, price controls, tariffs, um, antitrust law, which was enforced a lot more vigorously back then than it is today. Uh, high levels of government enforced unionization that we don't have today. So it's always funny to me, we always get these examples that I get from that era of all this growth that's supposedly, um, you know, uh, attributed to the free market. But when you look at those eras when that growth took place, it tip or that, that innovation, you know, that creative destruction or new things coming about took place was typically in eras that were a lot less free market than today. Um, so that's why I'm not, you know, overly persuaded by that argument. And if you look at, say, other eras where there was less regulation, like the Gilded Age, I mean, what happened? Trusts developed and those didn't get busted until the government stepped in and sort of saved capitalism from itself, um, which it had done multiple times in the progressive era, in the, po in the uh, you know, the post-war era um you know throughout history so in the industrial era the industrial era is mostly uh sort of a story of you know booms and busts until we get to the post-war era when we had a really really heavily regulated market and that sort of you know smoothed it out and not everything we did in that post-war era was necessarily good um but it certainly was not nearly as free as what you see in like the neoliberal era today mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just back to that point I made earlier, I think it's really hard to look back uh, at examples in the past and try to project or design something for the future. Because, I mean, we, I, I really do believe we're dealing with a paradigm shift, if, for, if none other, with, with Bitcoin, you know, all of its characteristics that we're familiar with, is that it's, uh, it's, it's a form of property, a form of, of wealth as a store of value that's no longer confiscatable and i think that fundamentally changes the 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 power dynamic in the world you know and, and just try this on for size so like i'm not well before you get into that i just want to say something that i find i've heard this one before i just one thing i find really interesting about that not I don't, this is not even a critique yeah is that essentially what that argument boils down to is that it, it basically boils down to the fact that capitalism and industrialism 
could cannot coexist except without Bitcoin. Like in other words, Bitcoin is the thing under that argument that allows those two things to coexist. Um, which that, maybe sorry, right, that, maybe, that allows which things to coexist again? Capitalism and what? Industrialization and yeah. capitalism. Basically, what that argument is saying is that yeah, cap, you know, mixing capitalism or laissez-faire capitalism, whatever you want to say, with industrialization has always failed in the past. But now <coughs> we have Bitcoin and Bitcoin is going to rescue that. That's yeah, well, an interesting, that's an interesting argument in that I, I can't, obviously it's not a refutable argument. There hasn't been Bitcoin since right. 2009, so I can't refute it. Mm -hmm. My only point that I always make when I, when I come across that argument is like, I'm not willing to take that gamble because if we go too far down this servile state path, we're screwed. Like there's a certain point of no return there where we're all just living essentially under a, you know, a dictatorship of capital, if you want to call it that, or something along those lines. So I'm an all of the above person. If I didn't think Bitcoin was a positive step away from that, I wouldn't spend my time on it. I do. Tr I don't want to give the impression that that's not something that I don't think Bitcoin's a positive in that direction. I definitely think it is. And again, that's why I spend my time on it. I'm, I'm just not willing to gamble on the fact that Bitcoin's going to be enough. If yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I get you. And I guess to, to clarify my stance on it, I do think that the forms of free market laissez-faire capitalism, where they've existed on a scale in the past, have probably been the best form of economic or, or social organization. I just think Bitcoin optimizes them, let's say. It, it allows for another, you know, it allows for greater functionality of those, of those systems. And what, just what I was going to say about money is that it's, and this is not a, a fully formed thought, but it's okay. Um, I tend to think of, you know, if we look at gold or various forms of money in the past, you know, because of their physical nature, when they were accumulated, they had to be concentrated and protected. And, and you know, basically, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that a lot of the, the systems, social structures, organizations, institutions that we have in the world are many ways rooted in the characteristics of the money of the form of exchange that a, a given society or civilization is using. And so I'm kind of of the opinion, you know, with, with, and I enjoy these sorts of discussions and, sure. you know, we, we got a lot more time to run here, but I'm more of the opinion if, if, you're, if you're dissatisfied with the social organization, structure, economic system, et cetera, look to the money and change the money versus trying to change the system and trying to convince people to organize or interact differently. Now, we haven't, you know, Bitcoin was obviously was not an option prior to 2009 and gold was, and you could make the case that gold was the best option, but it also led to our current state of affairs. So, you know, that's a fatal flaw in, in gold. Um, and its other characteristics led to institutions of, you know, that, that, that we have. I mean, I really think that as a fundamental mechanism for organizing human economic interaction, the money is where we want to look if we're trying to advance that, that advance our interaction and advance our exchange, advance how we live. And I think, if we, you know, let's fast forward a hundred years and, you know, hyper Bitcoinization and it all worked out the way we're all hoping it will. Um, but we're still like, eh, things are still kind of fucked up and they're not really working. And, you know, there's still, you know, unacceptable levels of inequality, if you want to put it that way, or if that's your, your way of thinking about it. 
rather than saying, you know, we need to revamp our political structure or whatever, I think we'd be more, uh, it would be more beneficial and more effective to go to the money and say, what are the characteristics that the money has? So if we look at Bitcoin, what are all the different characteristics? Let's lay them all out. And how would tweaking, changing, developing, you know, subtracting whatever characteristics, how would that manifest differences and changes in the social and economic system that, that is layered on top of them? That's kind of how I think about these things, rather than having a philosophy of libertarianism, Austrian, you know, conservative, yeah. anything like that. Yeah. So, by the way, the, the only... I wasn't laughing at you when you were saying that. the only reason that I smiled was just for your own information here. The only reason that I smiled a little bit is without you realizing it. And I'm, this is a compliment. Uh, this is not a, uh, hit, a, hit me, uh, Jeff, a, uh, a, an insult. You actually veered very, very, very close to, uh, Marx's theory of materialism there in terms of how societies are set up. Um, with a base and a superstructure. I, I won't go too far into No, no, right tell now, me, tell me. You were, you were very close. So the, the basic idea there is that, and you know, I'm not, the I'm not absolutely the best red guy with Marx, but probably better than most listeners of a Bitcoin podcast. Um, the idea, Marx's general idea was that your, your society was built around the means of production, of which money is one. Right. So he was a little broader than you, but uh, I gave you well, that's example. a key distinction, because for me, it's it's the money. It's the store of value medium of exchange that dictates higher level structures. So that is a difference. And I mean, the idea of the base and the superstructure is basically the base is, you know, the way that your means of production are structured in a given society. And then you have a superstructure that sort of develops based upon that. So. Uh, with the materialist conception of history, like the legal system, you know, things of that nature are all based on support for that existing um, uh, system that you have in terms of the means of production. So I don't want to get too far off on that, but that's the only reason that uh, that I was smiling there for a second. Right. Well, let me just um, let me just finish off that yeah. point in, in perhaps an overly simplistic way, but just so that I'm sure. clear the way I'm thinking about it. Let you know, I know various forms of money were used throughout the course of history. Let's say it's 5,000 years ago and a small village or a small civilization, they're using gold, right, as right. Their, their medium exchange. And, you know, everyone, it's a pretty flat, uh, you know, organizational uh, society. Um, and then, you know, everyone starts amassing surplus because of industrialization, whatever. And like, well, you know, I've got this surplus now. I don't need it right now. That's obviously the role of money comes in there. And then if it's something like gold, well, I've got so much of it. Now I need to protect it. I need to protect it personally. Our community needs to protect it. And you get layers of governance and protection and stuff that evolve on top That's of that. That's how you got banks. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and politicians and kings and all the rest of it. You know, one, you know, one of the major uh, uh, causes. Uh, and fast forward through a bunch of explanations so we can move along, but basically Bitcoin flattens a lot of that because of its inherent characteristics. It doesn't require a protective, uh, you know, it doesn't require someone to protect it for you. And that's a massive, massive thing. Cause why did armies cross borders to invade? It's to steal wealth, to steal land, to steal gold, to steal money. And so in a, a paradigm where the, the, the key unit of account exchange store value cannot be confiscated. That is a, fundamental difference in how 
you know, humanity, humans will organize and it will dictate what structures they require to organize as optimally as possible, as efficiently as possible, as peacefully as possible. That's kind of, I could, I could go on, but that's the general point there. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, I don't know that this is going to be relevant to the rest of what I'm going to say, but one quick point, I mean, Bitcoin's not perfectly unconfiscatable, right? I mean, it's, you know, someone could torture you for your keys. I mean, that's, that it's still, you know, you gave the example of armies marching to go and get gold. Well, yeah, I mean, gold was harder to protect than your keys, but boats still need to be protected, right? An army could, could can seize Bitcoin. They might not just be as efficient at it, right? Um, but Right, but the nature aside, of the protection is very different, right? Like if I've got a trillion dollars of gold, I, I yeah. need to have commensurate protection for that, you know, yeah. with tons of, you know, armies, mm -hmm. missiles, whatever time period we're talking about. If I have a trillion dollars in a, in my brain, then you know the, the 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 protection, the ways you do it, first of all, are obviously different. But I think they could be much more on an individual level rather than that's true. I, I need yep. a huge army to protect it, and that yeah. that is a, a very significant uh, distinction. I'm just not. I, I, the 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 difference here is like I don't disagree that you know a decentralized uh, less confiscatable hard money, uh, moves us in a better direction. As you say, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that point at all. My, I guess my concern is I'm not convinced. So you'll have countervailing factors, right? In other words, you've got, uh, let's say Bitcoin pushing us in a good direction towards decentralization. We're still going to have this economies of scale issue uh, uh, from technology pushing us in the other direction. And I don't feel confident enough in my prognostication ability to go all in on one of those two things. Um, I'm comfortable with a situation where uh, we give up some level of efficiency for safety. It's actually a, it's something that I consider to be a conservative approach, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I get it. And then the other part is, I mean, part of this too, that I think is just important, and this is not something where you and I are going to agree tonight on, but um, there's a, there's a worldview issue here as well um, in terms of, you know, libertarianism is a fundamentally liberal worldview, right? In other words, and what I mean by liberal, it's, it's an extreme liberal worldview, essentially, when I use the word liberal, I'm using it in the true sense of the word to mean, uh, you know, let's say a, a morality or however you want to, whatever you want to call it, based on the individual. The individual is sovereign. The individual's rights and preferences are the most important thing. Capitalism is a liberal economic system because if you take it to its, to the libertarian extent, um, you're you're literally believing that the thing that you can't interfere with is, per, is personal commerce, right? Trade, mutually beneficial trade between individuals. I mean, mm -hmm. that is a very, very um, liberal view of the world, okay? And I even zoomed out to a 10,000 foot view. It's not even just capitalism. I think liberalism collapses on itself. Um, when you're that folk, when you have such sort of a and no one's perfectly liberal or illiberal. So I don't want to give the, I don't want to straw man, you know, uh, the libertarian argument here, but just for the sake of understanding what I'm saying, imagine uh, a society that was, you know, perfectly liberal where we couldn't interfere uh, with each other's choices. 
essentially what you'd have is a society where whatever in that particular society was viewed who, who, who were the quote unquote strong, which in a capitalist society aren't even the traditional measures of strength, like physical prowess or leadership or anything like that. It's just kind of the ability to come up with stuff that people want to buy, frankly, or, and sometimes lack of ethics, frankly, as well um, in a perfectly capitalistic society. Those people, if you're saying in a, in a perfectly liberal worldview that their preferences can't be interfered with, well, essentially what happens is you have those guys that can exercise their choices freely um, and do so in a way where they're to, to the detriment of everyone else. So liberal freedom, if you take it to that extent, right, is an illusory freedom for all but a few people. So that's what I usually, what I mean when I often talk about liberalism being an Ouroboros. An Ouroboros, for those that are unfamiliar, is the, it's the dragon eating its, or snake eating its own tail, right? It, it, it sort of collapses in on itself. Why, so why, does that, why, is, why does that have to be the case, though? What do you mean? Like you said, you know, there's a few people that exercise their power over, you know. Well, uh, because if masses. you're not, if you're not, if you, I mean, I do believe that in any system, there's going to be a hierarchy, right? Some for people sure, are going to be better sure. at that system than the others. And if you, in a perfectly liberal system, you can't interfere with the preferences and choices of the people who are at the top of that hierarchy in that given system. So those how can, people- How can you not interfere with their preferences and choices? Well, because that's the, the, the whole conceit of liberalism is, you're not, is that, is that you, everyone's per, personal preferences are um, respected. You follow oh, oh, yeah. You mean as a as a some kind of as a state philosophical intervention system. or something? Yes, exactly. Nobody can right. mess with it, right? Nobody can mess with those preferences. So it's in their interest if no one can mess with their preferences, and they're at the guys at the top of the hierarchy that nobody can screw with. But the um, the market can mess with their preferences, right? That's fair game. We're, what you know, I think what liberalism suggests is like you know, I'm responsible for me, and I'll do what I want. I'll grant you the same rights. I won't impinge on your ability to do so. But Correct. on the the market will certainly limit me or or you know provide me opportunity based on all the different inputs of everybody everybody in it. Right, and that's you know I think that that's in the era in which liberalism was created as a philosophy that may have been true or partially true or certainly more true than today. One of the big things that influences my thinking is that industrialization turns everything on its head, uh, that it's an entirely new state of human affairs and that there have to be adjustments accordingly. I mean, to some degree, that's definitely, it's inarguably true, right? I mean, for instance, there was no socialism before industrialization. It was, this was, socialism was a reaction to industrialization. That's why it, it came about um, as a system of political economy, right? So, I mean, it obviously was a massive change. And I think sometimes people don't recognize the degree to which uh, these sort of economies of scale created by industrialization flip that onto its head um, and create opportunities to just amass levels of capital. So in a pre-industrial era, there really wasn't an efficiency advantage to you farming on your little farm and me farming on my little farm and let, you know everybody doing their own thing. That's not the case today, right? So somebody's gonna come out on top um, and that's where I consider you know, this to be self-collapsing. So do you, would you argue that today we're not 
I, I know this is a tricky question. I'm not trying yeah. to trap you, but are, are, would you, we're not better off than say two, three, four, five hundred years ago in terms of our individual well, I mean, freedom? Now, now, and, no, I'm not arguing. To, to, I mean, there there is a, a philosophy that you could say, like you know, we that's Ludditism, where you completely eliminate all t you know that you your view that it's it's like Ted Kaczynski, right? Um, right? Have you ever read Industrial Society in its Future? No. Should. Um, it's free on the internet. It's interesting. Um, I, by the way, I do not advocate sending people bombs in the mail. If, if anybody, <laughs> this is a little less anyway, take this the wrong way, but just the, the thought pattern there, um, you'll, I think you'll get something out of it. And again, don't take this as an endorsement of the ideas in there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a Ted Kaczynski type. I'm not a Luddite. I don't think that we should go back to living the way we were four or 500 years ago. Um, I just think that you know, we have to make adjustments. We have, there's been a million good things that have come about because of industrialization, right? And like any new creation of society or new system, there have been some bad parts too. Um, and I think that we can, in fact, deal with those bad parts without throwing the baby out with the bathwater um, and ending up with nothing. And I'm kind of bolstered in that belief by the latter half of the 20th century. Because the type of regulation in the latter half of the 20th century wasn't necessarily exactly what I would do today, but it certainly shows that um, you know regulation in general doesn't just kill off the whole system. Because in you know if you look at the 50s and the 60s, we had a much uh, broader distribution of wealth and capital than we have today. I mean that's just it's just true, right? There's no way to sort of argue against that. Um, and even, I mean, I can, we don't even have to go back that far. I mean, if you just go to the pre NAFTA era, like when I was a kid, things were much better in that regard than we are now. But things I think a lot of, a lot of people yeah. would argue that at least that's partially attributed to, you know, 1971 off gold standard, you know, it, gov government, uh, you know, seniorage and control of money just off the rails. Yeah, and this definitely is, where is. We're, and you know, it's kind of like a V shape going in different directions, you know, uh, that that that's a, a lot of the reason why we're in the state we're in today. Yeah, I mean it. It, it certainly is. Um, and um, where was I going with this? No, that's certainly part of the issue. I'm just not so sure that it's the only thing. And I'm sort of bolstered in that by the fact that this has gotten worse. I mean, '71 was when we was when Bretton Woods ended. Actually, the worst of things didn't really start till 2000 when we normalized trade relations with China. So it, I, I'm not persuaded that solely, you know, uh, the end of Bretton Woods created all these problems. It was certainly a big factor. Um, and in fact, we couldn't even have trade with China in the way we do today if we were not on a fiat-based system. Um, so obviously it's a factor even in terms of, you know, other other negative con other negative actions that have been taken at the government level since 1970. Sure, sure. But I'm just I'm not convinced that it's the only that it's the only causative factor. No, probably I'm generally probably suspicious not. of the whole one weird trick. Uh, I'm, and I'm not accusing you of using the the whole one weird trick view of of uh, solving problems. But yeah, uh, look, I mean, I, I agree. It's it's definitely multifactorial. And you know, I as far as free trade is concerned, I think it's somewhat misguided to think that you can have long-term fair free trade while you know two different countries 
one, have different regulations, but probably more importantly, are operating on different currencies. There's just far too many, uh, it's far too much ability to manipulate that arrangement. And it's just a constant battle of manipulating that arrangement via the currency or via other mechanisms. So I think, you know, if we had global free trade based on a consistent monetary standard like Bitcoin, then I right. think that, you know, global free trade would be far fairer and, uh, would be better would be better for everybody in the long term but just on the point about regulations you know what is a regulation right it's it's some entity telling you that you can't do something that you want to do or correct. compelling you to do something that you don't want to do correct that's that's what a regulation is and i think a lot of people that come from the libertarian side of things or the ancap or you know that that sort of stuff uh, would just, or ANCAP's a little bit different, of course, but would just say that th th this is a bit of a tricky philosophical thing, but let's just say, let's, uh, let, I'll agree with you and say, you know, the market has its own pitfalls and its own drawbacks and all the rest of it. Just arguendo, yeah. Right. Um, but the question comes down to if someone is going to be forcing me to do something or compelling me, or forcing me to do something I don't want to do or compelling me to do something that, yep. uh, or, or stopping my, prohibiting my behavior, sorry. Um, then who do I want the least to be doing that? What, do I want market forces that, you know, it's a, not a, a specific entity. It's, it's like, a, it's, it's literally just market forces that are doing that. And maybe it coalesces into a, a group of entities that you mentioned that collude at the top, although I'm, I'm highly skeptical that it would, it would go down that way. Or do I want a, a government entity that has a where there's a tremendous asymmetry of power and force to be dictating those regulations and via those regulations imposing on my my personal freedom and dictating my behavior. Which one would you rather? And I think a lot of those people would say, okay, I'm willing to concede that the market is an imperfect, you know, governance mechanism, let's say, but I think it's better than introducing an entity that is is directly going to be imposing its will on me and as a just a, at the end of that it's a very slippery slope you know i i've having read your stuff and listening to you, it's like you know there's a role for government and it you know it can regulate this but leave that alone and it can be here and not there but it's a you know who if history shows anything it shows that you know these uh concentrations of power get corrupted coerced co-opted and they get used for nefarious purposes. So it's just, I, I feel like a lot of people on the libertarian side say, no way, man, like I, I, I've seen this story before. And anytime we introduce an, a supra individual entity that has power over the individual, yes, it might work for a while. Yes, it might smooth out some bumps for a while, but long-term you get people that take that, that power and, and use the force that that power, that, that accompanies that power to, to impose on our freedom. And that's not what we want. Well, all power can be abused. I'm certainly not going to argue um, with you there. I mean, that's one of the downsides to everything that I'm proposing. Um, I would point out that the, the benefit of distributism in that regard is you're trying to create a lighter regulatory environment via and instead focus more on things like antitrust, where you're keeping capital more distributed so that the market, in fact, can handle a lot of what you're talking about, and we don't have to worry about this sort of centralization and collusion. That's sort of the whole 
the whole idea and method behind it. Now that doesn't work necessarily the way it would of a hundred years ago, right? Because of industrialization, there are certain entities that really just really do need to be big. Um, we'll t we can talk in a minute about wh what I think should be the case with entities like that. But the, the distributists have this sort of concept that's called subsidiarity to go to your point of, you know, freedom imposed from above, right? Subsidiary is sort of this idea that all sort of authority or power should be exercised at the lowest level at which it's effective. And people misinterpret this to mean that to take it as sort of a libertarian concept, right? Because what's the lowest level other than the individual? Well, the problem is that if you move all power to the level of the individual, that's an illusory freedom that actually, in fact, impairs individual freedom in aggregate. And what I mean, and that kind of goes to what I spoke about before where you know in a perfectly liberal society where we have only focus on the individual there's going to be dominance by some over others so the solution to that problem a subsidiary a subsidiarist solution to that problem is that you only you devolve power instead of power being devolved from the top to the bottom power is devolved from the bottom to the top and only enough power such that the minimum amount of power necessary to preserve that freedom at the lower levels. That's how subsidiarity works. Can that be abused? Is that a slippery slope? It absolutely is. Um, but I don't know of a better solution than to attempt to do that um, because I think it's been pretty clear by history of specifically the past 20 or 30 years um, that failure to do that and to go in this more, you know, neoliberal free market direction has had, has reduced the freedom of most people um, in society today. Um, and I, when I say reduce their freedom, I mean predominantly their economic freedom, right? They have less employment opportunities than before. Their wages are way too low. Um, and at the end of the day, a living wage is pretty much one of the most important um, material conditions that you need in order for people to enjoy freedom and agency in their daily lives. Sure, but I, I I would argue that the gap between you know wage growth and um, and cost of living have diverged primarily as a function of what government has done to the money. You know, one of the things with uh, you know about inflation, everyone always talks about you know the two percent, the three percent year. That's the hidden tax of inflation. But you know yeah. what people don't talk about as often is that the implication of an inflation target and what that means for subsuming productivity gains, right? So it, obviously the CPI is calculated in a very, you know, odd right. way. And most people don't think it actually represents, you know, the in real inflation, true inflation. Sure. And of course it suggests that inflation is a function of rising prices rather than increase in the money supply, which is a, you know, obviously a debate as well. Um, you know, obviously over the last 30 years, there's been, tremendous productivity gains let's if we're talking auto sector if we're talking you know consumer goods and electronics like things have become more efficient and that's primarily been driven by technological advancement and mm -hmm. what targeting two percent means basically is like no matter how much the productivity gain is in a given year or period of time let's just say for argument's sake it's 10 percent or 20 percent having that target in place means you're going to basically erase that gain and just still make sure that prices are increasing by 2% a year, right? Because we're using yeah. the CPI to, to target inflation. So 
and 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 who skims that all off the top of course it's the government that it's almost like the productivity gains get monetized immediately at source by the government and they get to all the the, the benefit accrues to them so you know i think if the government didn't control the money we would see you know declining prices and then stabilizing prices and then you know whether wages stagnated stayed the same or you know when uh, increased a little bit great you know I, I but i think that would normalize over time and of course this is my faith in free market and free market money with that but the government's intervention has totally fucked that and you know to your point about whether you know now we're it's more laissez-faire capitalist than it's ever been by deregulation or whatever i mean i'm not i'm not up enough on you know the policies over the last 20 years to comment on that but i think i can pretty confidently say that government has grown in size over you know it keep, it keeps growing and growing and uh, i think that just creates it ever greater not only their control of the money but just the fact that there's more people directly employed by the government that creates perversions and market distortions that are a net negative for the economy yeah, but a lot of that growth was in fact necessary due to the increasing freedom in the market, right? Because again, sort of as these markets get, you know, quote unquote, freer and freer, we've seen greater centralizations of capital and we've seen extreme changes in the balance of power between labor and capital. That's a big factor here. So both, you know, the nature of technology obviously devalues labor, period. Um, and then if you combine that with the fact that employers have more power than, o than ever over labor for a few reasons. Number one, um, they can simply just move, if they don't like uh, the you know, price or conditions that are required for labor in a given market, they can just move in a lot, in most industries, everything other than service industries, they can just move to another country. Um, and employ people in sort of deplorable conditions if need be. Um, so that's number one. Uh, and then number two is our legal system here, in, and this is sort of tied to number one, really. Our legal system here in the United States is no, is no longer favorable, let's say, towards unionization. Um, and that's a lot of that is tied to the free trade stuff as well. I mean, unionization has collapsed in the United States uh, over the past... 20 to 30 years. And with that collapsing unionization, what we've seen is, I mean, the point of a union is it allows labor to form cartel power against capital, right? I mean, that's the whole point of it. Um, and as they've lost that cartel power, they're in a more precarious situation than they've been in, you know, any time during my life. All those things are going to combine along with, you know, what you said about fiat money, you know, when you combine that all together, you're going to end up with wages that are not very high. Um, and you know, while the whole fiat factor, let's say, is certainly a factor in that, I am certainly not willing to bet the farm that it's the only factor and this is just going to magically fix itself right. in the event that the, that the money worked out. Then part of that is because I don't believe the market is particularly anything special. I just think it's a tool, um, for allocation of resources, but it's not a perfect tool and I don't ascribe any sort of, and I'm not saying you do, but any sort of like mythical or magical abilities to it uh, or anything of that nature. No. I don't think it does anything other than optimize for uh, efficient production 
other than that, I, I don't think that it really. Yeah, I think it optimizes for efficient production and resource allocation, but I also think it, um, it's an expression of freedom, and that's that's pretty important. Now, I, I you know I I kind of I can assume how you might push back on that, but I just think you know this uh, this discussion boils down to a pretty you know uh, basic philosophical argument is that you know, do we want to optimize for freedom of the individual or do we right. want to say uh, no, because when we get together in big enough numbers, things get tangly and we need to intervene. And the we is the key component there. We need to intervene to make it all work. And the problem with people that are on the, the former side of that argument say, yeah, but who's the we? And, you know, what's going to happen when that when that we has the ability to intervene, that's power. And what happens to that power? It corrupts, right? So th that's the nature of like, do, do you have faith in, 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 you know, human beings to organize freely and accept what comes of that? Or do you think, no, we need to intervene so that it, it all works together. And then, like I said, the, the, who's the we? Right. So not being a liberal, I have more faith in uh, in that what you're referring to as a we. And in terms of who are the we, that's sort of one of the major points of distributism is we wanna make that we as broad as possible. And that power that you're talking about exercising as broad as possible, I mean, could it still be abused? Of course, all power can be abused, but you wanna limit abuse in that way it's, a, it's sort of the whole point but isn't that the problem you make it as broad as possible then everyone wants to be included in the we because the we is the, the people who have a differential asymmetric power in in any sort of society or structure and then if everybody's the we then you're back in the same place because there's no you know you can't no part of that organism can in, impose anything on the other you're never going to have everyone be the we Right. And that's why it's not necessarily a perfect philosophy. You, you, uh, you stumbled sort of into, uh, into Marx there a little bit again, too, which is why I laughed again. So his critique of what he called like more reactionary forms of socialism or uh, what he called like bourgeois socialism was that instead of that, their goal was always to create a bourgeoisie without a proletariat, which goes exactly to what you said. In other words, that that would be an unworkable situation when everyone sort of becomes the we. And I sort of accept the fact that it's unfortunate that not everyone, you're never going to have a completely flat society. I don't believe that that is sort of in accordance with no, and I don't nature, think including, including the darker portions of human nature. 100%. But, I'm not suggesting that for sure. But No, I know you're not. I think you're suggesting the exact opposite. Right, that, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so the... Uh, my uh where was i going with this here? sorry oh my yeah no no not a problem so my point is we can still do better um and by making by having as many competing interests as possible in that if you want to call it the we the people that have uh dis disproportionate amount of power in society by having a, a larger number of competing interests in that quote unquote we uh, we can do a better job with reducing abuse. Now, like anything, that could be taken to its extreme, and what's its extreme is liberalism, where everyone's in, everyone is in the we in liberalism, right? There is no nobody can impose anything on anybody else. It's that um, that sort of I don't want to use the word fetishization. That's mean, but it's that sort of 
holding up of the individual as being sovereign above all else. And I just think that that, for the reasons we talked about, I guess, earlier, is sort of um, an illusory type of freedom. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, if you want, I can talk more specifically about different things that I think would be a good idea. Uh, I would, I would like to hear that. So hold that thought, yeah. but I just want to comment because, you know, just two, uh, two conversations ago or at the beginning of this one, you know, you yeah. were saying that, um, you know, technology is what drives the efficiency improvements, which is what drives the power into the control of the people that own capital and drives down the price of, uh, labor and stuff like that. Um, but, and of course, I understand that argument, but isn't that the, you know, kind of the same argument when cars came around and people making horseshoes were saying like, this is going to destroy everything. And obviously in today's day and age, automation is, uh, is talked about a lot, you know, robots replacing people. And so I think there's two ways you can go, right? People can say it's going to drive down the cost of labor. It's going to be tons of unemployment. You know, capital is going to concentrate. The other people say it's going to free up a lot of humans. Uh, there's going to be other opportunity as a result of the technological innovation and advancement in industries that are born out of that automation. And just as happened with the horseshoes and the cars, there will be, this is how we push human technological advancement and, you know, humanity forward. You know, th this is the, the process of becoming a more technologically advanced civilization. Right. But I mean, I guess my point is you can free, I mean, yeah, you can free people up. It's always going to happen. There's always going to be automation um, that is, as you say, going to free people up. But I fear that we do eventually get to a point where uh, we got a lot of, you know, quote unquote, free people and not enough stuff for them to do, which is fine in the event that, you know, look, like, uh, there's two different ways that this whole productivity thing can go. And this actually goes to something you tweeted about recently. So if you're becoming more productive, you need less labor. And as you said, you're freeing up more human beings. Um, you know, Keynes thought what would happen is that the way you'd make up for that is everybody would just be working like 15 hours a week. Right. And they would essentially that people would be getting paid like a living wage to work 15 hours. A week. 15 hours was the number he used. It doesn't really matter. Um, they would, you know, they would just have, people would have a lot more leisure time, but they'd still be earning like this nice living wage. That was his prediction. And of course he was very wrong about that, right? The, the opposite happened. Um, the labor market became more cutthroat than ever. Um, people have to work more to try to get ahead because there's, there are less slots, less opportunity, um, because all of those pro productivity gains have, instead of being passed on to labor, have gone almost entirely to the holders of capital. That's just an observation. I'm not, you could now you could talk about that the you know fiat money has a lot to do with that. I don't doubt that it does have a lot to do with that, but I'm not so sure that it's the only thing that's driving that. I think technology itself and just the way that the market naturally works in the presence of enhanced um, efficiency has a lot to do with, with do, do with that in its very nature. And trust me, I wish that we were in a situation where those productivity gains had gone down to the workers so that people were earning a living wage to work less hours instead of, you know, the reverse where we just drove down wages instead. Um, but this is the situation that we're in right here and right now. And that's the yeah. situation that 
that we have to deal with as a society. But I, I do think, and I, I know you just paid lip service to that. I do think a lot of that has to do with the money. But the other thing about the collusion argument is that if, you know, I certainly think hierarchies will develop. And let's say we're on a sounder monetary standard. Let's say we're on a Bitcoin standard and, you know, productivity gains are not being robbed from people. Wages are more consistent with productivity growth, all the rest of it. Of course, there's going to be some people like, yo, I'm cool with working 20 hours a week and I got my house and I got my family. It's cool. And there's going to be hyper competitive people that want to work 80 hours a week still because they want more They're you know, and they will achieve higher uh, levels on the hierarchy of of Mm -hmm. wealth and all the rest of it. But the, and I don't see anything wrong with that at all. Um, but the problem with the collusion argument, I feel, is like if, if the collusion is so total, right? If it actually is as effective as you're suggesting, and you know they've colluded to such a degree that they have a stranglehold on all the you know primary goods and services that anybody might need in a market, sure. which which again is a, is is quite an assumption. But let's say that's the case, um, then they stop being competitively minded you know if, you, if you've got a stranglehold on the market you're right. not you're, you're not thinking how, like you know how do we come out with the next best thing and beat this and beat that you're you're saying no we're, we can chill we like we got everything on lock and so at some point someone else in the market in which you're operating someone that you're not aware of that's not a you know a competitor they will innovate and they will do something better than you're doing it and they will start to get market share and then it'll be slow at first and then all at once you know, and, you know, Bitcoin is kind of a, a great example of that. But just in general, I think collusion means complacency. And uh, somewhere in a market, especially of this size and dynamism that we have all over the world today, with as many people and many products and services, that people will develop solutions that are better than those complacent colluders, and they will get market share. And you, you, you may argue, well, they'll get bought up and this or that, but it, that'll just, it's, it's the, the weeds that keep popping up or that alligator game that you keep trying to hit them down, but they keep popping up. Like, I feel that is the benefit of free markets and that, that's what causes the churn at the top. But you're making a big assumption that once we got to that servile state situation, you know, what Bullock would call the servile state, that anyone would be able to ever acquire enough capital in order to do what you just said, in order but, to innovate. And but I how don't could believe- it ever get there if that was happening the entire time? Like people are always going to be competing and innovating. doesn't matter if it's at the beginning of that process or at the end. Historically, what has happened is you have a period of high innovation that a number, a smaller number of producers win. Um, and then at that point, what we've seen historically is the government's had to step in to break it up. Um, it hasn't been a situation where, you know, the trusts in the 19, uh, in the early 20th and late 19th century are the classic example, right? Tell, tell me, tell me how the trusts work. Cause I'm not as, I'm not as familiar with it. So that the Gilded Age is typically held up as sort of this by libertarians as sort of this great era because there was, there was mass technological advancement, you know, during that era. The trusts were essentially these, like literally on these. This wasn't even informal collusion. I mean, this was literally on paper groups of organizations that it was called a trust that would collude together, like I the mean, oil that, trust that, and the railway yes, and that kind of shit. Exactly right, all that sort of stuff. And the way that the trust system ended um, in the U.S. was Roosevelt stepped in and broke them up, and that's why we have antitrust law today. Um, that's why it's called antitrust law, um, going back to that era. 
So I think, I think it's pretty much the natural in it, with industrialization. That's sort of the natural arc. And if what you said was true, so I'll give you this. There's certainly an argument that you might have a situation where you get up to that point, you know, where capital is very heavily concentrated. If they don't realize that they need to, there's two things can happen. They don't realize that they need to collude and they compete with each other. And then we're in a capitalist paradox situation where they're driving down wages to the point where there's no more demand um, and they create a recession or depression. And that recession or depression will, in fact, break up uh, capital ownership. It will redistribute capital ownership. It's a really ugly way to do that, but that will work. Um, or they realize they need to collude because they've seen, hey, the last time some guys were in this situation in the industrial era, they didn't do this and look where they ended up. They're gone now and that's why we're the guys on top now because they were too stupid to figure this out. And that's going to pretty much marshal them into collusion at least for a long period of time. If it's not permanent, as I think that it might be, or there's a risk that it would be, you know, sort of that servile state situation, um, then, and I don't mean literal permanence, there could be small changes here and there still within a servile type system. In other words, you could have like a small, a reasonably small number of conglomerates that might at any given time be competing with each other in certain new technological advancements. But then, you know, once somebody sort of won out in that particular market, that competition was done and then they would just compete on the next new thing that they come up with but it's still only that same group of conglomerates competing with each other in each successively new market, which by the way, some people don't think is a bad situation. Um, I do. I value, you know, personal agency enough to think that that is bad, but you know, that is a potential belief system there. Um, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Sorry. Again. I'll, I'll just jump in then. And, and this, some, you know, not perfectly, not a perfect response to what you just said, but you know, when you were saying that I was thinking, the other, and mate, this has, there's many different things that, uh, you know, change the nature of this conversation, the historical moment we're in, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. you know, I'm, I like to think of technologies that allow human beings to be independent, right? And we're entering an age where, you know, more and more technologies are bringing the quote unquote means of production the possibility of bringing them down to an individual level, right? So yeah. if I have my off the grid home, I have my citadel in the forest somewhere in Northern Canada, for example, then I have access to water, I can grow my own food, I can generate my own energy, I can do a lot of things as an individual, right? And to what degree will, you know, and of course, I know we're not there yet, but like, let's say, you know, people, more and more people, and I think you can make a case that Bitcoin is inspiring this in people, are developing a more independently minded uh, attitude and and you know vision for themselves, and are saying that I want to I want to mitigate or decrease my dependencies wherever they exist, whether it's on the medical system, whether it's on you know uh, energy, whether it's on water or or uh, essential services or whatever. Uh, and then they you know then they're they're it's almost like they're they're more impervious to anyone who would like to to collude and gain control over them. You know what I'm saying? Well, the problem is all the, that sort of uh, subsistence, I, I know you don't literally mean subsistence, but subsistence type future that you mentioned there, uh, to do all that stuff, you'd need very advanced technological tools. 
Um, and the people that develop those tools, if there are a small number of producers in the economy, those are going to be the people that are going to have tremendous power over uh, society, right? A, a level of power but, but, with which I, so like, I'll give you the, the, the example, like someone once asked me like, well, what about a post scarcity society where technological advancement just gets so far that we don't have scarcity anymore? Why would we have to worry about this? And I, I think that's almost the time where you most need to worry about this because the people that control the technology that created that post scarcity society then almost have perfect or absolute power. Right. They're like gods then. Yes. Right. Yeah. I like, I, I don't think we're going to, I don't, this whole abundance thing, I don't, not sure I buy into that because I think we're always just going to move the goalposts as people. And as a civilization, we're going to say, Oh, we have everything we want on earth. Yeah. But what about that planet over there? Let's like, let's go do the same thing over there. Sure. So I don't, I don't think we'll ever, we'll ever get to that stage, but you know, to your point about people that control these technologies, I mean, if we're going to, to have the real argument, like that's, you can do that now. It's still primitive, like 3D printers are primitive and all the rest of it. But like you could you you could be an independent living human and survive pretty comfortably right now. And so once these and, and this is developing rapidly and these te technologies are improving rapidly, you know, is the window of opportunity closing for for the type of uh, power dynamic that you're not proposing, but that you're describing and, and trying to avert? Because well, if more and more people take personal responsibility. And I know that's a big if, because there's a lots of, you know, we live in a society where many people abdicate their personal responsibility and, and willingly give it over to many different, uh, pro, you know, service providers or other people. But if for people that wanted to do that, if it happened on mass, you know, how could you be under the thumb of people if you're literally independent in almost every regard and which you could construct for yourself right now? Well, I mean, you're, I mean, you still need a decent amount of capital to be able to do that, right? I mean, like, sure. if you're... Uh, but you have the opportunity to gain that capital now, right? We're not some like... People do, some people sure, do. Sure, I, some I'd people argue do. that most people don't. Um, but there's obviously a number of people that have the ability to do that right now. Um, I don't think that... Most people do not. And the people that, are, that have the, the, the amount of capital to be able to do that are probably the least likely to do so because they're the ones that are doing pretty well in the current system, right? Mm -hmm. Those are, those are the upper classes. Um, so I don't see that as sort of throwing a wrench in, uh, in the scenario that I kind of laid out there. Right. Fair enough. All right. Let's go back a few minutes. You said you were going to, you said I can propose a, a solution or like I can propose what I see as a solution for all of as this. Po potential solutions, because at the end of the day, I mean, the distributism is basically just using the legal system uh, in such a way that you want to decentralize the ownership of capital, right? The solutions that were proposed in like, you know, Servile State was written in 1912. Uh, most of the stuff was written in the through, you know, in the 1910s through the end of the 1920s. It really wouldn't be applicable today. Um, like for instance, one of the main solutions that Block and Chesterton would talk about is like, oh, we could take unemployed people in the cities and we could just give them plots of land in the countryside and they could become subsistence farmers. Well, that's not really practical, right? Uh, in the 21st century. So you have to be willing, I guess, in a lot of ways, I think to sort of incrementally, cause I am very much an conservative and an inc incrementalist in this way, um, throw things at the wall and see if they stick, um, you know, and go little by little. So, 
what are some examples, right? Things that we could do right off the bat um, would, would be like trade changes. Um, you know, we didn't have this like nearly as free of a trade uh, 30 years ago versus today. We know it's not some crazy disaster not to have completely free trade. We can't go back to that old system immediately. Unfortunately, we're too tied in to countries like China today uh, for that to happen. Honestly, one of the reasons I like Bitcoin so much is because these, the massive trade deficit that we run with China, uh, in fact, is only made possible through fiat currency. So without a fiat currency, that deficit would have to shrink over time and our dependence on China, our, the necessity of dependence on China would have to shrink over time. And maybe we could start to sort of de disentangle ourselves and bring some more industry back to the United States. Could you just um, ex explain a tiny bit about why the uh, trade deficit would not be possible with Bitcoin? because of balance of payments. So uh, ultimately, so here's what happens, right? Uh, if I want to buy something from China, I have to, uh, I have to buy it with the yuan, right? So essentially what happens here is dollars get, uh, dollars go to, there's a flow of currency. What, forget about actually dollars and yuan. Yeah. There's a flow of currency from the United States to China, right? That money is then leaving and going to China. So what has to happen? So if for the U.S. to keep demanding, to have money to keep buying stuff from China, you know, speaking of the balance of payments, the, therefore the Chinese have to be buying stuff from the United States, right? I mean, that's just simple math. If all the money is leaving the United States, imagine like, a, imagine it was gold. If all our gold is leaving the United States and going to China, there's going to be a natural limiter on that due to the fact that we're not going to have any more gold anymore. We're not going to be able to buy anything, right? So that system can't just sort of go on forever and ever and ever. So what I mean, how do you deal with that? What happens? Like, how is this working right now? Well, the only way that that deficit can be propped up in the current time is that we have to, in a fiat system, print more money. Now, normally, the money printing would also even still eventually balance itself out due to the fact that we would have to keep printing more and more and more and more and more and more and more dollars to send to China. China would be then selling those extra dollars for its own currency, right? Therefore, driving down the value of the dollar, as the value of the dollar continued to fall, production in China is now not nearly as comparatively efficient. You'd be better off producing things in the United States since the dollars become so cheap. So even with a pure fiat system, there's even some degree of a balancing mechanism there. The reason that doesn't happen in the current era, which is essentially a tacit agreement between China and the United States, because China wants to keep exporting and the U.S. Want, you know, doesn't want to have to rein in its spending, because obviously spending is a part of this equation as well. Um, so what essentially happens is the Chinese take all of their dollars and instead of selling them, which would lower the value of the dollar, they buy treasury bonds, which allows the United States to keep printing more and more and more and more money. So that's why we're so intertangled with China. Our entire deficit funding mechanism 
relies on the fact that the Chinese have all these profits from exporting to the United States that because they don't want their money to appreciate in value because then that export market is going to be cut off for them. Right. They reinvest in treasury bonds in the United States or in the U.S. financial system in general. They also buy like U.S. securities, Wall Street products, sure. things like that. That's why we've had financialization in the United States since 2000. The only part of the economy that's actually booming is the fake part of the economy, all these financial products, because that's where the money goes. Right. You, you, you take the cheap jobs, just make sure you invest it all back in, in our economy or in our financial sector and we're good. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's basically an agreement where we'll send you all our well-paying blue collar jobs in exchange for like you propping up our financial sector. Right. Um, and cheap goods for consumers. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that was supposedly why it all works out. Right. We, we ruin people's lives and jobs, but they'll be able to buy stuff real cheap. So they'll be okay. Um, hasn't worked out so well. Uh, it, there's a lot of problems with that. I'm not even going to get into sure, that right sure. now. Um, so, you know, a differing way to look at trade tariffs that are based on, uh, for also environmental conditions in a given country, um, both environmental and labor conditions in a given country, um, would be tremendously beneficial. Right. Um, other policies that are obviously, you know, designed to increase wages. Uh, although I don't believe unions are the ultimate end game, and I'll get to what I think the end game are in a minute. In the meantime, absolutely, I favor card check. Um, I, you're probably not familiar with that. Uh, card check is a basically it's an easier way to form a union. Right now in the United States, if you want to form a union, the way it works is you circulate these signature cards around the workplace. 30% of the employees sign the cards, 30% or more, there's an election, right? The employer becomes aware at that time that this is going on. There's an, ele there's a, an election where the employees then will have a vote to determine whether or not uh, a union is formed. The problem with that is the reality of that situation is that uh, the employees, therefore, um, the, the employer knows what's going on and basically can do a bunch of sketchy stuff terms of threatening the employees to try and stop the union from forming, right? right. That, that's, that's basically the issue with card check. Uh, basically you don't, you can skip the election if you get 50% of the employees to sign cards. Um, so basically 50% of the employees sign cards, they bring them to the employer. That's it. The employer is legally required to recognize the union um, at that point. So it's an easier method of unionization that unionization in general, I think, is a it's not a permanent solution but it at least gets wages up in the meantime and i consider it very important for that reason ultimately right. what i would like to see in larger enterprises that can't be decentralized right like you're not going to have like your local i i can't even think of a giant business right now but let's just it's technology companies right some of these are just there's not going to be one of those in every town that's not going to be a thing you know what i mean antitrust or not that's just, there's, there's always going to be a smaller number of certain uh, companies that operate in a market where, where economies of scale are really great. Right. For companies of like that in the short term, uh, I favor a co-determination system, which is Germany does this. This is a system where. Can I just uh, jump, jump in yeah. for one sec before, cause so we'll, we'll peg that we're yeah. on Germany and co-determination, but just about you, you know, I had a friend, I had a conversation with a friend uh, recently and you know he's starting this new business technology you know um, 
agricultural technology. And, um, you know, he, you know, is a, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but anyways, what he wanted to do was um, pay everybody the same, regardless of what their position was. Right. And I was like, well, you know, absent, you know, obviously you're relying on people to be very like uh, to have other perhaps altruistic reasons for being involved in this venture, because otherwise they would just go out and get their market price for their, for their labor, whether you're an engineer or a janitor, there's a market price for the labor. And if you're paying, you know, the janitor, the same as your engineer, you're going to have a tough go of business. And if you're paying the the engineer, the same amount as your janitor, well, he'll just go out and and find a a higher paying job somewhere else. Sure. But, um, and then, you know, it got into this sort of talk of uh, minimum wage and legislating and regulating this, these sorts of things. And what I always come back to is in a free market, right? Right. People that want to unionize their labor, and and you can you can structure a, a business, a company, a, a group of people who have certain skills and and represent a certain group of labor. However you like, right? That's that's the beauty of being. Able, and then it, then it can see. Then we can all see. If you want to operate that way, you operate that way, and and the the chips fall where they may. My my issue is is that in the case of a union, right? You say okay. You know, everyone's agreed that uh, they want to see the card check you were just describing over 50 percent. OK, now the the employer has to, um, you know, a- adopt the union. And that what that what that means is that they have to pay more for their labor. And then that what means is that they have to charge more for their services. Absolutely. Right? And that what that means is that, that they it's they're distorting. The, the 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 pure market regulating factor of the value they're providing and what they're receiving in, in return. And Correct. that will have a self-imposed limit at a certain stage, right? Because they'll keep having, if the, what they have to charge more for their services, the added gain of that enforced higher compensation for the union is less and less effective over time because the things that are being made are increasing in price as a result of that enforcement of that that wage. And then you just get this, you know, it's a downward spiral, I guess you could say, or an upward spiral, depending on what way you're looking at it, but that the effect becomes over time, it, it, it's, it's counterproductive to what they were trying to achieve in the first place. So if they had just let pure market mechanisms dictate what the cost of that particular labor was for that particular job, rather than dictating supermarket that this labor is worth this much and that company must pay that labor because all that's going to happen is the market will adjust to that that intervention and that perversion that's been created by a by the forcing the enforcement entity which is obviously the government and so that it 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 will just of course they can it can go on for it's not 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 happen immediately it can go on for a period of time but it's ultimately it's counterproductive yeah i mean here's the thing I mean, historically, what's what's that didn't happen though in the, and that's why the, we see what you know. Sorry, to, the last point on that. Yeah. That's why we see what we talked about earlier, where wage growth is not consistent with uh, with price increases. Right, but I mean, that's what unionization does by boosting up wages. It typically does not. Not all of that is typically actually passed on. In the in, part of it is obviously passed on as higher prices, but more likely, what's going to happen is it's it's passed on in the form of lower dividends, lower stock prices. Is that, that likely nature. though? I mean, oh, I, well, are, the people I at the, are the decision makers at the top more likely to say, eh, we'll, we'll, we'll pay ourselves less or say, uh, oh, pass it on to. 
Well, by your by your uh, own admission, there they are in a competitive market, so they're not going to be able to you know uh, pass one hundred percent of those costs back on to the employer. Sure. Well, even if it's fifty percent or twenty five percent, it's still the, you're, oh, it's you're marching towards the same they're place. They're still better off if it's if it's less than one hundred percent. They're better off. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's a market distortion, but I think that's good, right? Because I don't think the market optimizes for wages. So uh, I'm all about distorting the market in areas where it doesn't optimize for wages. But what about something but, like a, a minimum wage? I mean, the minimum wage is fine. I, like, it's not like it's not something that I oppose. Uh, but how could you ever determine what, like, the precise with all the in data inputs in a market, what it should be, especially when it's you know coming from a federal level and it's being, you know, in all the different yeah, states and markets. The, those are the imperfections in it, right? And I don't uh, I, look the situation we're in today. People are so desperate that I certainly don't oppose it. Is it the best solution? No. Um, some of the stuff, if you let me go on a little bit further, sure. Um, I think are going to be better solutions. Unionization is better than is uh, relying on unionization to increase wages is better than relying on a minimum wage for that reason, because that's an agreement. The minimum wage then becomes an agreement negotiated between the union, which is on one hand and the employer on the other. It's, it's, it is a negotiation in that case between employer and employee. The only difference is the employees are forming a cartel to maximize their leverage. That's the only difference in that scenario. So, right. It's not a market wage in the way that, you know, you might consider a market wage, but it's more of a market wage than a minimum wage is, let's say. Yeah, fair, um, en fair enough. But just and the, the ultimate idea, I think you're going to see where I'm going here. This will, okay. this will tie back into the union thing, right? So, you know, unions are a way that we provide people relief right now. They're not perfect for a variety of reasons, but they, they're going to make a lot of people's lives a lot better almost immediately. Um, and then from unions, I think the next step from there is we start looking at this co-determination stuff where once your business is, has reached a certain size, um, which is to some degree arbitrary, but like, like a lot of things, we have to make arbitrary decisions. Um, that's where you you have to give your employees a voice on the board of directors. They become involved in employee governance. I um, mean, at that point, it's absolutely the case that this company is no longer run entirely for the benefit of the shareholders. There's a back and forth between shareholders and employees at that point. And the ultimate goal, the last stage of that, if you're looking at this from an incrementalist perspective, what I would like to see is a scenario where maybe you're, you know, your small and medium sized businesses continue as is private ownership, but these large entities, the entities that I'm talking about being the entities that would be required to be in a co-determination system, eventually become co-ops. I don't know if you're, if you're uh, familiar with like Mondragon, have you heard of that company? Okay. So they're based in Spain. They're a, a very, very large global, global conglomerate. They manufacture a million different types of things, everything from appliances to spare parts to all kinds of stuff. Um, and they have no shareholders. Um, they're governed entirely by and for their own employees. Um, so that would be, you know, if you were to ask me what my best case scenario would be over a so the employees are the period. shareholders well they don't shareholder sort of if you want it's to think a legal it entity way. right somebody has the legal own entity it. yeah exactly it's a legal entity it's uh, it's a legal entity where governance is handled entirely by the employees and 
I, I won't get into the, the real gritty details of the governance structure um, because I don't remember them off the top of my head right this second. I'd have to look at them myself because it is a little bit complicated. The different divisions uh, have their own governance structures and then there's a council at the top. Um, there's even separate councils that represent the employees as owners versus the employees as employees. Um, and they, and again, I, I'm not right now, I'm not prepared to go entirely into that, but yeah, that's just, the idea of, I just fail to see that works. why that's preferable. You know, like uh, uh, employers or sorry, shareholders and employers, obviously, first of all, they save capital or they access capital in some way. And then they deploy that capital to do many things. But one of the things that they do is they right. make a laborer's labor more valuable, obviously, right? So absent the factory that makes the car, right? that labor, that, that labor is not worth $100 an hour. Maybe it's right. worth $10 an hour for picking apples off the trees or whatever. But the person who's, who's put up the capital investment and who has you know, the intellectual capital and all the other things that go in to making a system that can actually leverage the value, like enhance the value of labor, right? So it's not like labor has an in inherent value. It has a market value depending on what it kind of plugs into in terms of the work it's doing. And so why, you know, why is it, and, and the people that the shareholders and the, the, the employers there, they do all of that in order to provide goods and services at the best, at the, in, the, in the most efficient way to the market. Right. And, and the, the more they're able to do that, like the, the more that cap capital inflows and they get profits and they invest them back into the market in order to expand operations or to research and development or to any of this kind of stuff. Why is it more preferable to have everybody be an owner? Like, obviously, that's not how it started. Why? I just don't understand. Why is it preferable? Yeah. They're going to work in better conditions, have higher wages, more have more agency over their daily life. Are they though? Why would they? Just because they're all owners. And 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 like again, back to my previous argument, I think they're they're shooting themselves in the foot because they're they're destroying the entity that that gave them the opportunity to value their labor. Well, they're still an the executive team. They're still an executive team, um, but that executive team is elected by the employees themselves. It's not as if there's no executive structure at all. That would be obviously a nightmare. The organization wouldn't be able to run. No, um, I, I, I get it. But it's like, what, like yeah. the, the owners and the shareholders, why is it bad that they're, they're, they're creating an entity that's allowing labor to be valued more than it otherwise would be? Why is that insufficient as far as the labor is concerned? For example, if someone started a, a factory across the street from where I am right now. And they, $2 an hour was their rate. And somebody willingly said, sure, I'll spend my time working for $2 an hour. And they, they make that free exchange. And that's a benefit to the person making the $2 an hour because they otherwise, their labor wouldn't have been valued at, that way. And it's a benefit to the employer because they're getting uh, access to labor that they need to make their products and services. What's what's wrong with that relationship what's wrong with a relationship where okay i i kind of lost track of because you went a couple different directions there uh, i mean well i'll go i'll go to this your your main conceit there was why is it preferable to when 
for say a cooperative structure versus a shareholder corporate structure, right? Is that the question we're trying to get at here? Yes, yeah, more or less. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, it depends on what you're, what you're trying to optimize for here. If you're trying to optimize for, well, I, I, well, I mean, I guess not forget that for a second. I mean, if you're, if we're talking about a situation where you're saying, what are the benefits? Well, people clearly are going to have a higher wage, right? Like, because the, the sort of surplus, you know, the profits, if you will, instead of accruing to a small number of people at the top, they're going to accrue across a very, very broad group of people. This is a right. method of decentralization. But then there's, there's less capital left at the top to expand, grow, survive, compete, innovate. And well, that, that assuming, may shorten the life of the You're the enterprise. assuming that they are going, that the executive team elected by the um, employees is necessarily going to be higher time preference than a bunch of shareholders are. I don't agree with that statement at all. Um, shareholders can't look past like usually 90 days. Like that's how, that's how corporations work. Whereas employees know that they're going to need this job going forward. Um, and experience, you yeah, know, but the premise, the premise is that they're being paid more than their market rate. So right off the bat, that's my point is that less, like more money is being paid out in the form of wages. That means less money is going to be made available to invest back in the business. No, it doesn't mean that because the shareholders have to get paid in a corporation. So the surplus that would go to the shareholders is instead of going to shareholders goes to the employees. They That's don't the have, difference. they don't have to, if the, if, if the, if the company was in a really tight competitive environment, right. They, the shareholders could say, invest it all back into the business. Don't pay, don't pay out a dividend. Don't, don't do whatever. And you're again, you're, Again, your assumption here is that employees would would be would be higher time preference than shareholders. Like well, that's the assumption that this all hinges on. What What do you mean? The, because because all I'm just saying is that the money that they're the added the extra money that they're the supermarket wage that they're earning is taking money away from the business. You're so there is a surplus, right? Let's just call it a surplus that can either be go to extra wages or shareholder dividends or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to get into technicalities, but in a co-op, part of what they earn is a wage and part is a dividend. We can c collapse that into just wage for purposes of our discussion because it's going to the employees either way. Mm -hmm. So that surplus in a corporation, shareholders, when they're for reinvestment and growth, have to be willing to not take that surplus up front, right? In other words, they have to be willing to delay it's a, it's a time preference issue they have to be willing to be have a low enough time preference that they're willing not to take that surplus up front in the form of dividends we agree there right sure okay so employees are no different like employees like they're like i said they're usually the way these co-ops are structured there's their basic wage and then there's something akin to a dividend that they receive on top of that, depending on the company's performance and, you know, ability to pay and all this different stuff. There's no reason to believe that employees sitting in that scenario would have any uh, higher of a time preference than shareholders. And in fact, in fact, based on real world experience with Mondragon and also just the way shareholders act, I would actually allege the opposite. It's in the, the employees 
need this company to keep going. Shareholders, it's like whatever. As long as I sold my shares at the right time and I timed it right, eh, doesn't matter to me. As long as I wasn't the guy holding the bag at the end. So I don't buy at all that employees uh, sitting in that position would act in a higher time preference way than shareholders. But isn't the whole premise of like unions and stuff like that is that they're actually prioritizing their own wage growth then with a union they would which is why so a union is a fundamentally combat combative situation right because the union and the employer are on opposite ends they're at loggerheads mm -hmm. right if you eventually get to the point where you're in a co-op and i just gave you sort of a three-step way to get there unions are step one co-determination step two the co-op is step three once you've gotten to the level of a co-op, that antagonistic relationship is no longer there. Um, they are, they have a direct responsibility in hand and hand in the operation of the business day to day and in its ultimate success or failure. So at that point, there isn't that natural antagonism. And in fact, Mondragona numerous times in its history, and this is a huge company that sells stuff all over the world. The employees have, in fact, voted to cut their own wages and payouts um, when market conditions have dictated such. How did a co-op? How does a co-op form in the first place? Like, why did the original investors or owners give up so much power they, and ownership? It was formed as a co-op from the beginning uh, in Spain. It was formed uh, basically based on the premises of Catholic social teaching um, right. at that time. Uh, to, tr to try and rebuild the economy in that region of Spain after the war. Um, so it began that way from the beginning. Mm -hmm. How we're actually going to transition, you know, from a, from co-determination to a co-op, the only thing, you know, that's a great question. I think it's going to, there's going to be some trial and error there. In the beginning, I'd like to see a situation where, um, uh, you know, there'd be a legal structure in which, there'd be a smooth buyout of shareholders from employees. Like they'd have to carry some debt for a while. Right. Um, and exactly the ins and outs of how exactly that would work. I think it's too early to know, but that's what I would see as a future. Uh, that's a best case scenario. We have a situation where there's a mechanism in place by which employees can buy out the shareholders and that there's also a legal mechanism in place such that uh, new co-ops are able to form and you know receive funding. Uh, you know, not when I say funding, not necessarily like a grant, but a streamlined way for them to receive financing like any other startup business. So we'll see. And I and I would favor incentivizing that through the tax code as well. Uh, in other words, for-profit corporations should be put at a tax disadvantage to co-ops. Absolutely. <laughs> right. 100%. I just, I, I just don't see either why, you know, uh, co-ops in which you know the employees are also the owners. Like, why would we expect them to make better decisions for the life and development of the business than people who actually, you know, like everyone's not equal in their ability and people. Yeah, but I don't, I don't like, care if they're making. What well, shareholders are morons, though. They're still electing. Well, exec, shareholders are still electing an, an executive team, just like employees would. Um, and shareholders don't give a crap about the underlying business. They just need. They just care about where the shares are going to be worth more in two weeks when they sell. 
Like which is high, highly well it depends what type of shareholder we're talking about but if you're a long-term shareholder you, the, how much money you make is very tightly correlated to how well the business does generally right eh, maybe i'm not really in, in general terms like if the if if the business does poorly your shares are probably going to be worth less i mean maybe sometimes that's that's far from that's very far from uh universal right but how, how are your shares worth more if that's not true because people are just willing to buy them. It's right. stock market over a long, long enough time period. Game. Yeah, sure. The stock market's manipulated. I get all that. But over a long enough time period, you own you own shares in the business because you think it's going to grow and do well, and you will the value you'll accrue to you as a result of owning shares in that business, right? Uh, yeah. You just think your shares are going to be worth more in the future than they are today. Right. And usually, the underlying assumption is because the business is going to do well. Eh, I don't. I don't agree with that. It's usually you don't think that's usually you, the underlying assumption. No, I think it's more so just that they th shares usually trade on like news and expectations and things like that. It's not necessarily short-term traders for sure. But if like we're saving for your four hundred one k and you buy Apple in two thousand, you, that's not a short-term trade. You're thinking Apple's big company probably going to be around, probably going to still do well. I want, I want some of that value. Yeah. I mean, I'll concede that you think that they're going to exist and be able to continue to make, pay, be profitable enough to pay you right. To make, to, to eventually pay dividends, let's say, right. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll concede that point, but employees have the same motivation. They want to keep their job. So they, you know, they need to get paid on a day-to-day -day basis as well. I just feel like all this is so tangly. And I think this is part of the problem that we're in today is that, uh, you know, with, you know, extremely large governments uh, trying to micromanage the economy on every single level, it's like you can never acquire and synthesize enough data to do that properly. And it's always just going to be tweaking this and tweaking that and creating perversions here and there when the free market literally does that without any work. I start a company, I, I provide a job at a certain price, 99% of the people say, fuck that, I'm worth more than that. 1% says, yeah, cool, that's a, that's a fair trade for me. And, and it's, it's done. Like, there no, doesn't have to be any further negotiating or nitpicking or tweaking or regulations or anything. But when you start introducing that stuff, I just feel like it's, you, you'll be doing it forever and it will constantly, you know, it, it never reaches a, an appropriate equilibrium and it'll always create inefficiencies and it's always gonna need more management to the point of micromanagement. And I think we'll see bureaucratic bloat on, a, on an individual company level as we're seeing on a government level today until we-, we Why would there be more bloat in a co-op than a- sh First of all, I just wanna be clear that um, I don't think that small businesses, it's probably efficient to run this way. I'm talking about, or even necessarily preferable, but like your Amazons of the world are what I'm talking about here. Um, why would- why would there be more bureaucratic bloat? There'd actually be less. There'd be way less in a co-op than a shareholder-owned corporation. With it, but with with all these within the co-op, you're you're setting you know standards, right? Like the people have to be paid a minimum of this much, and they have to get this much ownership, and they have to be this much ownership say, and you know, like. But that in itself is just set by the the, the co-op's organizing documents, just like a corporation sets. A corporation sets its own wages based on the decisions made by a management team that are elected by shareholders. A co-op sets wages based on a... Uh, How about this? The simple fact that it's an intentional structure versus an yeah. emergent one 
is it means that there's more work. A shareholder, a corporation's not an, an emergent structure. That's a creation of the state, literally. I don't think co-ops are a cure-all, but I, th I think it's for certain, I'd prefer small, smaller businesses that are individually owned. But the co-op thing is basically a recognition that certain businesses aren't going to be individually owned like that. Um, they're going to require uh, just a larger size. And for those businesses, um, co-op is what I would, and by the way, Mondragon is not the only company that does this, uh, public supermarkets, which is, that's a U.S. company. It's one of the largest supermarket chains in the, chains in the entire United States. Um, that's owned by its employees. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is not like a wild thing that doesn't exist. Uh, sure, sure. And I don't, I typically what happens in these setups is, uh, management team is paid much less. Um, that's typically, that's the norm, but that's because in a, in a for-profit corporation, management essentially has no, um, how do I put this? Management has no, in, the incentives are mismatched, right? If you, you know, in a for-profit corporation, shareholders really, they don't really care about the long-term health of the business. Management doesn't care about the long-term health of the business. They all care about the next quarter, where in an organization that has input by the people that are actually working there, they actually care whether this thing survives five or 10 years, right? I mean, that's, that's the main difference. Yeah, maybe at a certain Talking about certain large size, businesses. Yeah. Now, smaller businesses right now, absolutely. If you own uh, a store or a bar or a restaurant or whatever, you're very vested in making sure that that organization continues uh, you know, into the future, let's say. Um, very much so. But that, that sort of incentivization of longer term thinking tends to disappear once your company gets over a certain size. It certainly tends to disappear once your company's publicly traded, it's gone. Like, you know, uh, you're not going to have any incentive for that kind of thinking at all. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, over and over again. Right. So, well, I'll, uh, I'll, I don't, I'll leave yeah. that point to stand because I just, I, no I lost track of time and we're, we're getting on here now. But, um, yeah. Uh, I, I do have some rapid fires that I usually finish with if you have the time, right but I wanted to, if you wanted to finish your point about Germany and determination, cause that's where we pause. That was it. Okay. I just see co-determination as a middle step before my main point in three sentences was small and medium businesses, uh, individually owned large businesses is like a three-step process towards getting a, to a good solution. Unions first, co-determination second, hopefully eventually co-ops. Co-ops aren't perfect. You'd still need market regulation, probably. We don't have time to go into why this is in the event of a, of a cooperative, uh, cooperatively owned company. But uh, that's it. That's uh, just a few examples of things that I think are a good idea. And also in the short term, obviously, vigorous enforcement of antitrust. Right. Got it. All right. So this last section, Jeff, is uh, there's two portions. There's one that's just a list of questions and you can answer as brief or as long as you wish. Yeah. And then the last part is a word associations where I just fire out a word. You tell me the first thing that comes to your head. Okay. Okay. First one is what is money? Uh, money to me is a, well, I, man, I could talk an hour I, about this. I know. Uh, it's let me, the toughest one. I promise. Yeah, it is the toughest one. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even going to use the fancy terms like medium of exchange and store. Well, I guess I have to, I was going to say money to me is primarily a store of value, um, a way to save your wealth that's waiting to be deployed. 
Um, and then as part of that, it also has to be accepted as a you know, medium of exchange so that it can in fact be deployed. Uh, one of the problems we have today is we don't have a good money. So in order for store of wealth, people have to invest in all kinds of crazy things that create bubbles, as I'm sure that you know. If you had to explain Bitcoin to a 10-year-old, what would you say? I would show them the episode, the the DuckTales episode. You, you know what I'm talking about or no? No. I can't believe more Bitcoiners don't know about this. I guess because they're so young. There is an episode of DuckTales. Duck yeah, there's an episode of DuckTales where Huey, Dewey, and Louie get a hold of this, like, um, it's like a, like a ray, like a gun, like a, like a, like, like a, st and when they point it at things and they shoot, the gold multiplies, right? So they can go into like Scrooge's vault. I haven't watched this thing in forever, but you can, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube and they shoot the gun and like the money, they can make more gold. So they think this is awesome. And they start like going all around town buying stuff. But what happens is there's so much gold all around town that like hot dogs start to be like cost like huge amounts of gold. It's basically like an explanation of how fiat currency works. Right. There's an episode of DuckTales. It's like perfect. Awesome. I'll have to check it out. Um, how will you know if Bitcoin has failed? What will be the hallmark or sign? Uh, so that's a great question because I don't, I think there's numerous th things. I'm going to kind of answer this question backwards. Um, there's, two different ways I think Bitcoin could be successful, right? The number one way is the one that everyone talks about, hyper-Bitcoinization, okay? There is a second thing that I would still consider to be a success. If, if Bitcoin exists, uh, stays in circulation as a stable store of value, and the dollar is forced to harden itself so as to prevent hyper-Bitcoinization, so there'd be a system where you'd be using dollars they wouldn't be perfectly hard. You'd be using them for your day-to-day -day purchases. Uh, and you'd be maybe using Bitcoin for your longer-term savings, for international transactions, for certain transactions where the dollar is censored. I still consider that a success. Now, many people say that that's an impossibility. And I understand why, because the, the, the best money always wins out, right? But in this case, uh, I still could see a a system like that, dollars for transactions, it's kind of like the silver and gold situation, right? Bitcoin for the, you know, international purchases, long-term savings, things like that. There's a variety of reasons that that could happen. For instance, and I don't think, I'm not pessimistic on lightning, I'm not at all, but let, let's say it didn't work out, right? That's one reason that something like that could happen. Or, you know, a scenario where as Bitcoin's taking off, the dollar really does harden and get pegged to something. Well, we may never get enough adoption at that point to get hyper Bitcoinization, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a couple different ways that could happen. I would consider that scenario also to be a success. The failure is if neither of those two things happen. In other words, Bitcoin just kind of falls out of circulation. You have one resource, a book, article, podcast episode, website to refer to someone who's just coming into the space, which is it? You mean to learn about Bitcoin? Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin standard, Safety's book. What other investments are you interested in? Or just one? You don't have to tell so, me I mean, here's the thing. This is how I'll answer that question. I think that most investments in our current economic system are a scam. So I don't even know how to. I was picking that up from the, the end of our last conversation. Yeah. yeah. So nothing else. 
I think you got to do the best that you can. Uh, I don't want to give people specific financial advice, so I'll just leave it at that. All right. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone just entering the space, the Bitcoin space? Understand why you're involved in it. And that really goes to reading Safedine's book. Um, don't look at it as like a penny stock trading type thing. A lot of people get involved in Bitcoin because they look at it like a penny stock, right? Like they look at it that way. And that's, those are usually the people that get into altcoins as well. Mm -hmm. What movie or song is most related to Bitcoin in your opinion? Uh, uh, the Big Short, the movie. Because I mean, it was a book, but it was also a movie. Yeah, yeah. Can Bitcoin be stopped? If so, what is Bitcoin's biggest vulnerability? If not, why not? Uh, yeah, it can be stopped. I mean, well, How? Can it, it can be, it can be stopped. It, it, could it be stopped from, I'm not saying it's likely, could it be stopped from ever becoming a, like a global phenomenon? Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, if we had a really totalitarian government that was like really monitoring your internet, like internet traffic and things like that, and, and was able to, because ultimately they control the internet backbone, right? If they could find a way to prevent nodes from communicating. And I know there are people that have workarounds for this kind of stuff like Gotenna, et cetera, but that kind of thing would prevent mass adoption, I guess at least. Now, I don't think that that's likely because there's already enough people that have power behind making those sorts of decisions that own Bitcoin, that it's in their interest not to do so. You follow what I'm saying? Yep. And that's sort of, the advantage of, for instance, Wall Street getting involved in Bitcoin with the futures. Um, I don't care about that as a way to onboard people. I I hate bankers, you know what I mean? But I think it's good because it's now there's people that have real power in society that are financially incentivized not to try and kill it. Right. Uh, what is something about Bitcoin you don't understand very well or you'd like to spend more time learning about? <sighs> I do not completely, I mean, I understand conceptually how like, you know, ECDSA math works, um, but I don't like, I couldn't sit down and manually do the math by hand. I think that would you be- You and me both. A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've, have you read Jimmy Song's book? No, not yet. Yeah, his is, he goes like more like deeply into that. Right. Uh, that sort of stuff, yeah. yeah. Uh, when, if ever, do you think the first central bank will start adding Bitcoin to the reserves? And will they exist in 20 years, do you think? Uh, central banks? Yeah. Yeah, I do think central banks will still exist in 20 years. I think this whole thing's going to be much, much slower. Uh, not to be a pessimist, <laughs> but I just I think the whole thing's going to be a lot slower than uh, people think it is. Not slower as in like a thousand years, but like, like some people think in 10 years, just fiat currency is going to be gone. And I don't think that. I don't think in 20 years it's going to be gone either. Right. I could be wrong. Who knows? I'm just prognosticating. Um, so as for when central banks start buying it, they probably some one of them somewhere probably already is. Right. Um, so I'd say it's probably already happened. What have you learned about yourself or how have you changed if at all, as a result of learning about and interacting with Bitcoin? Huh? I think I've become a, I was always a big saver, but I've like become even an even bigger saver. Um, and always have been skeptical of finance, but have become even more skeptical of finance. <laughs> I think that's pretty common, both of those things. Uh, do you have any, what's your most controversial or contrarian view or opinion? If nothing on Bitcoin, any subject is, is uh, okay. Well, uh, 
well, I'm not a capitalist, right? As long as we just discussed <laughs> for the past. Yeah, we got, well, we I mean, got that one. But yeah, I mean, by some definitions of capitalism, I would be, right? Um, right. I suppose, but certainly not by the Austrian def. The only reason I say that is because the distributists in their writing, despite sincerely believing in uh, private property and not calling for the elimination of markets altogether, Chesterton and Bullock did explicitly state in their writings that they were not capitalists. So I just kind of piggyback off of their use of the term. Whereas like, you know, to a Marxist, I would be a capitalist. Right. So it's, it's all a matter of degree, I suppose. Yeah. Ballpark estimate of Bitcoin's price in five years, not financial advice, just speculating. Five years. Oh man. I've, I, I'm like horrible at the price stuff. I'll give you an answer, but let me say first, I'm horrible <laughs> at the price stuff because I don't really pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, like the day I don't pay attention to the day to day price and I don't know anything about financial modeling, uh, like at all. I don't know anything about technical analysis. Like I'm a CPA, but that's not what we do. Right. So like, so I don't know anything about that at all. So I'm just going to like randomly say a hundred thousand dollars. It's a round number. Fair enough. Uh, what if we are wrong? Will anything change? What, you know, if this whole Bitcoin thing, we're all wrong about it. How would it affect you? I won't affect me at all. I mean, my worldview would still be entire. I see that's kind of interesting because I think most Bitcoiners that would be tougher on because if you have a, like a really strong libertarian or anarchist worldview and this fails, I think that you, I don't want to speak for anybody with those worldviews, but you, you might need to look a little, you might you maybe depending on the reason why it failed, you might need to take a more of a look at that worldview. But I don't share that worldview, so I don't think it would affect my view of the world or human nature or political economy much at all, to be honest. Yeah. I think it's an important tool. I think it's a really promising tool. Uh, and I'd be super bummed if it didn't work out. But, you know. What about your past has positioned you to care about Bitcoin? And this is a, a question submitted by Will Reeves, the CEO of Fold. Okay. What in my past has um, positioned you to care about Bitcoin? Care about Bitcoin. I well, I get. I guess here's the thing. What? Why? All right. Like I'm like I've been very successful, right? I've been very lucky, but I grew up in a place where. Uh, as compared to a lot of Bitcoiners, not all, there's Bitcoiners from all spectrums and walks of life and things of that nature. But I grew up in an area where a lot of people were not all that successful, right? Um, and were more, they weren't reliant on family money or anything like that. They were more reliant just on their labor and being able to save, right? And I kind of seen firsthand how rough uh, many of the economic changes over the past 30 to 40 years have been. Uh, and I think that one way which we can better people is by giving them the ability, an easier ability to save and better themselves. And also, I guess, even more specifically, move away from uh, a debt-based economy, right? Because that's how these people really uh, get screwed. If you're like a work-a-day laborer, and the system is sort of intentionally designed such that you have to, your wage is so low that such, and you're, and you don't have a good savings mechanism that you have to sort of borrow, right? Oftentimes 
just to get by at various times in your life. And then once you've borrowed, you're sort of in this subservient relationship to your lender and you're kind of stuck. Um, and I think Bitcoin makes a debt-based economy a lot more difficult. And it also makes saving for these people a lot more, a lot easier. And if they can save, that's really the ticket out of sort of what we refer to as like wage slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is one question you'd like to see added to this list? You can pass if you like, but if there's anything you think would be a good thing to ask to uh, some of the guests that come on. You think, give me one minute. On yeah, this sure. One. Uh, I'll ask you, I'll ask you another question while you're yeah. mulling that one. This, the last one of this section is uh, one book, right one book everyone should read. Not, but not a Bitcoin book. Is that the, the implied? Sure. We already, well, said you, already standard, asked, yeah. you already asked yeah, yeah. me the one thing to read for Bitcoin. Sure, not, a, not a Bitcoin book. I said safe's book. Um, yeah. So that's good to, for people listening to this podcast. I, I, I think you should read specifically because you're not going to agree with it. If you're listening to this podcast, I think you should read Marx's capital. Um, Das Kapital. Um, I think you should read that to see the op- the diametric opposite of your own beliefs. And if you reject the whole thing outright, that's I, that's what I would expect from most of the people listening to this podcast. But I think exposure of that stuff is good. Um, and I, by the way, I say that as you know, my family uh, fled the Russian Revolution, the Communist Revolution in Russia. So I'm not I'm not a communist or anything, but I think. There's a lot of tools you could pick up from something like that. Um, to go back to a question that uh, should be added to the list. Ah, I don't have anything for you, man. That's lame, but I just, uh, <laughs> on the spot like this, yeah, I don't yeah, have I know. I get it. No worries. All right. Last part. This is a rapid fire part. So I'll say, yeah. I'll say a word. You tell me the first thing that comes to your head. Uh, democracy. Good. The lightning network. Uncertain, not not pessimistic, but uh, I'm not pessimistic on. It. I want to be clear about that. It's when I say uncertain. Let me be. I, I'm ruining the whole conceit of the segment here. But when I say uncertain, it's only because right. I think it's great that people are working on it. It's super important. But right now, there's no economic use case for it, and it's good that people are working on it before there's an economic use case on it. So when that economic use case comes, we're not just going to be left flapping in the wind with no way to handle transactions once the fee market goes up. Right. So that's the only reason I say uncertain is just like, it's going to be a while before that gets adopted. And that is not a bad thing at all. Yep. Government. Necessary. Human rights. Squishy. Violence. Fact of life. Ego. The enemy. Greed. Human. Wealth. Wow, you finally stumped me on one. I don't know what I think of that. I have so many mixed uh, feelings about that. Uh, I'm going to say necessary again. I already used it, but yeah. Privacy. Right. Hate speech. As in a right. Yeah. Hate speech, a right. Gold. Money. Guns. Protection. Revolution. Uh, mixed. Socialism. Mixed. Family. Cornerstone of society. Inequality. Unfortunate. Hell. Religion. Liberty. Prosperity. Energy. 
Um, Adams, that's lame, but it's, it's, what came, it's what popped in there. The carnivore diet. Uh, directionally accurate. And Bitcoin. Money. That's it, Jeff. I uh, right. I really appreciate appreciate you taking the time. It was a fun discussion. I mean, I, I could go on for hours, but uh, we we probably both gotta get on with things. And if anybody's still if anybody's still listening, but uh, I look forward to picking it up someday, maybe in uh, in Meet Space at a conference or something. Because uh, you know, I, I I do appreciate it when you know when I first heard you on Marty's show. You know, obviously, I disagree with a lot of the stuff you were saying. Sure. But, you know, as is the case on Twitter, and you know. I just appreciate when people can get together and have a conversation, even though we both know we're going to probably diverge or disagree on a lot of different things, but I can, sure. I can hear out your point and, and legitimately try to listen to it to see if it affects the rationale and the reason that I've already brought to my point of view. And hopefully, and it's, you know, it seems like it to me that you, you do the same. And I just appreciate that, uh, you know, that, uh, method of interact, interacting and intellectual discourse. So no problem. You got it, man. Yeah. Uh, is there anywhere or anyone, <laughs> anywhere you want to direct people, shout out anything that you're doing? Uh, yeah, just, you know, if you're interested in holding Bitcoin in your IRA while holding your own keys, uh, check out keykeeperira.com. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm at, my Twitter handle's horrible, at V-A-N-D-R-E-W-A-T-T-Y-C-P-A. Eh, not so bad. I've seen worse. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Well, look, thanks again. I wish you all the best and uh, look forward to catching up again in the future. You got it, man. Thanks. Take care, brother. Bye. Later.